Well, hello and welcome to episode number 426 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I am Carlos and we are back. Uh, we have a packed show this week. We've got some stories coming up on the Queen's last final flight, almost breaking flight radar 24. We've got unruly passengers and many of those to come as well. And also Nev's going to talk about some snazzy new business class and premium economy seats on an airline this week. Armando's got the military news all in hand and we've also got uh, some very special interviews we're playing out this week, uh, part of a new series, all to look forward to on tonight's show. So joining me back in the PTUK Master Suite studios, pushing all the correct buttons, sliders, knob twiddly bits, and cables, it's Matt Smith. Although I wouldn't recommend doing anything to cables, especially when you're on air. That's not the way forward. Well, hello. I'm a little bit worried because we've had a, a couple of weeks off because of sort of events that have been taking place here in the UK. I'm a bit worried I've forgotten how to do this. <laughs> so I know, it's, it's so good luck, everyone, I think. Back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, so how, how's uh, Mr Smith then? Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been a, been a bit poorly today, actually, if I'm honest. Oh. Um, yeah. No, I I ate something dodgy yesterday, and I I've paid for it. I'll leave the details to your own imagination. There, forward. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, but there's some tablets that are doing wonders, at least, which is why I'm able to sit here. Ah, <laughs> uh, we we won't say anything about no, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> and joining us this week, as always, back in his seat in his home studios in the sprawling. Buckinghamshire countryside where the sun always shines. It's our king of all things BA. It's Neville Bounds. Yes, here we are, back again. And uh, it seems longer than two weeks, doesn't it? Somehow. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been a, a good week again. Did some uh, flying up to Edinburgh on Monday from London City Airport just for a day or so. Um, and uh, yeah, work is extremely busy at the moment. I'm off to Stockholm on Monday for th four days. Um, so yeah, it is uh, full on again and the airports are very busy again, just like they used to be uh, pre-pandemic as well. So, um, but uh, no, all good. And we've got uh, so much on the show tonight to cover um, and uh, really looking forward to bringing you uh, some of the stuff that we shot at Jersey and also part one of the interview that Nick Anderson did with Chris Burwell. Very excited about that and I can't believe that it's been like only two weeks. It feels like ages ago since you went to that. It does. Very I know. Yeah, it does. Uh, and uh, we met so we made so many new friends there as well in Jersey, uh, and uh, they were so accommodating um, for what we were trying to do. And uh, the weather just held off uh, amazingly, uh, and the actual um, uh, the air show itself, the air display itself, uh, on on the day was perfect weather, uh, which was not what was forecast. So I know. Um, that, that's so what it's like in Jersey. You know, you do, you do get different outcomes to what is actually forecast. So, well, um, and in your favour for a change, which is... It was, know. yes, very much so. Um, so, yeah, we'll be talking about that later in the show. Can't wait. Excellent. And he's back after being away for what seems like a million years. And he's also wearing what could only be described as the most summery summertime shirt i think i've seen in ages is of course <laughs> are the fabulous armando hey carlos nev matt uh john it's really uh 
I'm really happy to be back in person. It does feel like it's been forever. Um, it has been a, a roller coaster of a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that here in a second in the weekly roundup. But as usual, I'm just happy to be uh, back. As, as Captain Jeff says, from Studio 314 in the Marriott in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> very good yes yes, oh, yes. You've, got, you've got a birmingham there as well yeah it makes a change i wonder if it's as bad as the birmingham that we have here i wonder it's uh, sorry if you live in birmingham i do apologize uh, <laughs> well, you move on before we offend yes anyone. yes i'm sorry um, i'm sorry so uh, as uh, as armando said you've got uh, you've got a bit of a roundup haven't you armando about uh, the uh, the reno uh, races yeah um kind of two events that that Matt and John asked me to talk about. So Reno this year was a interesting um, was was an interesting year to say the least. Um, I, I, I have to start off with this year was uh, filled with loss. Um, first of all, on September second, we lost uh, Sherm Smoot. Uh, Sherm was the president of the unlimited class. He was uh, a naval aviator, retired naval aviator. He did twenty eight years at Continental Airlines. Very very experienced. Uh, pilot and racer. He was testing his Yak 11 for the races. And on September 2nd, uh, I believe out in California, they had an unknown issue. Um, this is a, a 3,000 horse, or sorry, 2,000 horsepower um, modified engine that they had put in there. They were doing the final tests in preparation for Reno on uh, you know September 11th, September 10th is when everybody got there. And uh, the the FAA and the NTSB still investigating that, what happened there. Um, But then also during the races, we lost one of the jet racers, Aaron Hogue. Um, This has probably made its way through. uh, Oh, sorry. And let let me uh, me go back to Sherm real quick. Um, Nick Camacho from APG uh, was a good, was a friend of his. They flew together out uh, in California in the C-47 so um, I guess our, you know, obviously to all of Sherm's family, September family, the racing family, everybody who knew him, but but uh, specifically to to Nick, um, who who knew him well. Um, but yeah, during the during the gold race, which is the the final race on Sunday in Reno, uh, we lost Aaron Hogue in an L twenty nine. That is also under investigation, as you can imagine. Um, couple different uh, theories so far is is he got into some wake turbulence he could have uh, suffered from from a g-lock event uh, you know g-induced loss of consciousness um the 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 crash itself was was really interesting um in the way it happened it, it was it almost looked like it, he was just pulling off the course but but for, you know pretty quickly into it I, I think most people that have been to the races and know what's going on knew that it wasn't going to end well um there were some videos floating around that that looked like a perhaps an aileron had uh, separated from the aircraft that may have been induced by by um, by wake by turbulence or maybe just in in the maneuvering the hard maneuvering. But um, either way, that that is also under investigation. And there's uh, I'm I'm not going to talk about it here much more than that. There's some other um, you know Juan Brown and Blancolario. They they've done some uh, analysis and the AOPA. Uh, Safety Foundation also has a preliminary video on it that that uh, you know people can go check out to see some of some of the actions. But um, other than that, you know, kind of moving on to to the rest of Reno, uh, it was challenging. The weather there, the weather itself wasn't wasn't too terrible. But there's a, a massive fire called the Mosquito Fire just outside of uh, 
Sacramento, California, between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, <laughs> all week long, the winds were such that it was blowing right over Reno. Um, so there were plenty of days where we had less than three miles visibility. The slowest airplanes on the course require three miles visibility and the fastest aircraft require between uh, six and nine miles of visibility. And we didn't have that uh, for a lot of the week. So we actually lost three days of racing, qualifying. A lot of strategy happened there because uh, guys, you know, were, were qualifying early, qualifying late. Uh, because I am part of the sport class, the sport class itself, there were some amazing races, the bronze and the silver uh, and medallion uh, heats or categories, just great, great racing, which culminated on Sunday. The sport class did get its gold race in, which now the these are home-built aircraft. These are glass airs and lance airs that are um, doing 400 miles per hour. So Jeff Lavelle and his race 39 qualified at a 402 mile per hour lap in a home-built glass air three uh, around wow. the course. Uh, yeah, but uh, what ended up happening in the final race is, as, uh, as our class president, Bob Mills, um, said, it, they left it all on the track. The top three aircraft, um, which was Jeff Lavelle in his glass air, Andrew Finley in his Lance Air, um, steel-sponsored aircraft, and Jim Rust in his glass air three, all three made it. Uh, two of them ended up dead sticking it back into, uh, into the emergency runway. Um, and the winner was of the gold race, very unexpected, was actually uh, Matthias Hyde from Switzerland in his Thunder Mustang. He, uh, he came in at just over 320 miles per hour. And uh, what I've, you, you know, for, th for the top three racers to Mayday out and leaving Matthias out there, everybody was so incredibly proud of him, his team. Uh, they they put so much work into that aircraft and and they did an engine swap that that airplane has a Falcon or B12, um, but the uh, just they they worked so hard and they're just you know they just truck along. The half the team comes over from Switzerland and Germany, and just it, it just proves that that all that hard work you take a win however you take a win and and the sport class couldn't be any more proud of Matthias because he was the rookie of the year. Um, just a couple of years ago, and now he's winning the gold, which is the, the top. Um, but I guess just to kind of wrap up Reno before we go too long is uh, it was a, it was a week of, of family. You know, Megan and Maddie came out. They made they made some friends, and we camped out there. And, and as, like any other air show, as soon as uh, five o'clock comes around and the and the crowds go home, uh, everybody's really tight. All the pilots, the crews, crew chiefs. Uh, the volunteers, everybody uh, is out there, especially camping. Um, you know, we eat dinner together, we drink together, have fun together. Um, and it was a, a great combination of both family and the September family, which is all these people that I just mentioned coming uh, together through a fairly challenging week, um, you know, with, with its up, ups and downs. And uh, I, I did get a chance to, to meet up with some friends. Um, John Jester's dad was, was there and, oh, wow. and he lives in the local area. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I met him when I was 14 years old, but uh, we didn't get a chance. I, I think they uh, they decided to not come out to the races because of the visibility. It was a quite quite a haul for them. But um, either way, it's, it's uh, just proof that that both family and the September family all comes together for this unique event. And, and like everybody says, you know, you should if you get an opportunity to you should come out and, and see it. Not a lot of content. Sorry about that. Um, it's just a really busy week. 
Um, we have a, an interview with Vicky Benzing that will play out at some point. But uh, other than that, we didn't really get a chance um, to, to too much dynamic movement for the week to, to really record stuff. So Now, there, there was uh, something else I think you were involved in as well or, or, or sort of aware of, and that was to do with uh, the Women in Aviation event that happened recently. Yeah, um, well, I was just in a supporting role, but uh, well, yes, uh, the whip, <laughs> yeah, whip, yeah. Whip. <laughs> well, actually, that's one of the things that I wanted to mention about this. The Women in Aviation International is a pretty big organization like the 99s. Um, you don't have to be a woman to be part of the organization. I am a member of Women in Aviation International because I like uh, fostering opportunities for for uh, women to get into aviation. Matt's got some pictures in there. But um, every year, Women in Aviation International uh, helps their local chapters put on what's called a, a Girls in Aviation Day. It's still happening. So if you're out there, check with your local um, uh, Women in Aviation uh, website or chapter, because it's kind of through the months of September and October that these are happening. Um, our local chapter there at Concord, North Carolina, put on a, a really nice event, which, which Matt you, you know, is, is showing those pictures there. And uh, there was some attendance by uh, Southwest Airlines, PSA Airlines, American Airlines, uh, the Air Force uh, National Guard was there. There was a lot of STEM organizations, and they just come out and bring all kinds of, of fun uh, events and tables and presentations and uh, some really cool aircraft. And and the uh, the women that are there are 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 serving as mentors. Right? It's a it's a great opportunity to to network within the organization and externally, as well as, uh, as find some mentors. I, and we're kind of living this firsthand, which I've, I've watched Megan kind of my wife, Megan go through, uh, meeting me over the, you know, over the past 10 years, uh, meeting me to what is this aviation thing to realizing, Oh man, aviation is everywhere to just meeting some neighbors. That's wait a minute. Now all these people, <laughs> some kind of tie to aviation yeah. whether you're an enthusiast a passenger or pilot and all the way to wait is this really attainable to oh my gosh this is attainable to us buying an airplane to now her being excited about about learning to fly and that is something that this organization women aviation international as well as all kinds of other organizations out there that's what they're there to do they're, they they foster this 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 love of aviation and help people get into it and, and make them realize that it is absolutely attainable and and all over the world there these these um these groups exist so if, if you're even just remotely interested in aviation as we are if you're listening to this show go out and, and take that discovery flight and i think you know dirt we're gonna have some content from him later in the month um uh, about him getting uh, I forget it. Is this his wife or his girlfriend? I can't remember. Or maybe both. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like she took a ride in a, in a, in a MIG. We'll get that out there. But it's so cool to just watch the, the evolution of somebody from discovery all the way to, to really immersing themselves in it. So. Sounds like a great project. Still there. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a great project. It really does. Wish we'd have had something like that when I was younger. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Right, so we better say hello to everyone in the chat room before we move on. Uh, let's have a look who we got in the chat room tonight. Richard Adams uh, was in there nice and early this evening. Uh, we've got Captain Cruz. Hello to you. We have got uh, Mazus. Hello to Mazus. Hobby Time. Dirk S. 
Uh, Arnie's in there as well. Arnie's been looking forward to this show all week. Yes. <laughs> uh, John Jester is in there. David Corson's even tuned in from Spain. Hello to you, David. Uh, Katie's in there. Oh, we better watch out. I man. know, behaving myself already. Behaving yes. myself. Yeah. Hello to Masha as well. Jonathan Warner, he's at work, but he's watching anyway. What's what? What could be better? Getting paid to watch uh, watch a show, uh, <laughs> and, and I did check. He wasn't the one responsible for my train being delayed because it's oh, it's no. not his area. I'm pleased to say. <laughs> we have got uh, Bill uh, Aaron X in there as well. Captain Cruz, Neil Lamwarn. Hello. Uh, we have got. I don't miss anyone out. Uh, I don't want to miss anyone out, Richard. I'm, oh, and our main man, Micah, oh, is Micah, also yes. well, no, in the chat room. Micah, he, well, he's <laughs> obviously keeping up, uh, keeping up the blue spanner of doom. Of course, yes. Just in case, yes. Just in case anyone comes in and sees us. Yes, in case the want. bots pop in. You yeah. know, to see, you uh, know don't forget, like if you're visit. listening to the show as an audio podcast, which a lot of people do do, and you want to see what this Doo-doo. kind of, what, what, this, <laughs> what this is like on YouTube, don't forget to look for us on YouTube. Just search for Plain Don't do it. Stay where you are. It's much Click nicer. <laughs> on that subscribe button. Give it a damn good punching, and then uh, In- ignorance the is bliss. Stay where you are. Don't 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 come over. <laughs> don't come over to the so side. We have got. We've got a. We've literally got about six weeks worth of content to play right. tonight. Okay. So we better okay. crack on uh, with some commercial news if everyone's ready. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. So this week's first story comes to us from UKAviation.news and Flight Radar 24. Uh, so for those of you who may use the app Flight Radar 24, I know I do, along with many other aviation-style apps, uh, the uh, Queen's final flight almost broke Flight Radar 24 this, uh, this week. Uh, so the tracking website of choice for many says that their website came under heavy load uh, last week as the Queen Elizabeth II's coffin was flown from Edinburgh to RAF North Hull in London. At its peak, 4.79 million people were tracking the flight on Flight Radar 24 on the website app, and hundreds of thousands more were watching on a YouTube stream, making it the most tracked flight in the website's history. Wow. The Royal Air Force C-17 bore the registration Zulu Zulu 177 and used the call sign Kitty Hawk, used whenever the Queen was on board the flight, which left Edinburgh Airport at 17.42 local time, arriving at RAF Northolt. So Flight Radar 24 said that around 600,000 users were unable to log on before the performance was degraded and asked customers to watch the YouTube stream instead. The company said, even though the platform suffered under such heavy load, uh, the Queen Elizabeth II's final flight from RF, oh, from Edinburgh to RF Northolt is by far the most all-time tracked flight on Flight Radar 24 and will likely remain at the top for a very long while. Within the first minute of the aircraft's transponder activating, six million people attempted to click on the flight carrying the Queen. In total... They processed 76.2 million requests to uh, related to the flight alone. That's um, any action by a user or like by clicking on the flight icon, clicking on the aircraft information that's in the left-hand side box or adjusting the settings on the app. So it's... Uh, 
it's well some points of interest which uh, john's kindly put in here around 100 flights were cancelled and 200 total flights affected in some way uh, to maintain silence and reduced noise proceedings on the monday last week uh, the two minutes silence was heard or not heard through all throughout heathrow airport and ACAR's messages uh, to aircraft announcing the death of the Queen were also something that hit the news as well. Mm. Uh, there were some videos of uh, a pilot announcing it on board an aircraft while it was in flight. I remember seeing that on uh, Twitter. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it, not surprising that this was something that, um, you know, nearly broke Flight Radar 24. Other apps are available. Um, yes, of course, know. yeah. I mean, and that, I think actually that was quite a clever move by them to make the, you know, use a backup stream or something and pump it out on YouTube so that everybody could follow it that they wanted to. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a, a, a very strange couple of weeks, hasn't it, here? Uh, let's be honest. Um, yes. But uh, I, for one, um, and uh, I appreciate that not everybody feels the same way as I do, but I must say I was very, very proud of what uh, took place over the last couple of weeks here. It, it was nice to see the UK doing what it does best in terms of pomp and circumstance. I love it. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it was nice to see, and I know it's not yeah. aviation related, but it was lovely to see the fact that uh, even though those queues were incredibly long yes. uh, um, la or last week, that there was loads of people just having fun yeah. and getting to know each other which was quite nice yeah. to see in the UK I'll tell you what one of the things that got me as well it was just like uh, we'll, we'll gloss over uh, a couple of celebrities uh, in, in a queue um, or not as the case may be but I, I was genuinely thinking like because uh, obviously one of the things that hit the headlines obviously was David Beckham wasn't it um, yes. queuing with everyone else and you just think what a moment that must have been for everyone in the queue to literally spend you know 30, 13 hours you know no bodyguards or anything like that just sort of in the queue yeah. Um, and you know chatting and all that kind of thing and I'm sure there were loads of celebrities that were that w didn't sort of get picked up on if you like doing it but uh, it was <laughs> anyway moving on indeed uh, yeah. gonna say hello to relax with V and John Ellis who have joined us in the chat oh, room two hello. names I haven't seen in the chat room before so good evening to you nice to see some new faces in the chat room always uh, so moving on to the next story Matt you've got uh, it's been a it's been a busy week in the news stories this week on aviation mm. uh, networks for fighting on aircraft oh good yeah, so well, we do we do love a fighty story and this time for a change as I say we've got multiple incidents of unruly passengers in the past week or so uh, and uh, including uh, some on Ryanair I mean it is story two <laughs> after all let's be honest uh, so <laughs> a flight uh, so unruly passengers loads of sources on this Wales Online Manchester Evening News uh, CNN Justice.gov hello New York Times FAA Twitter loads of places that this has all been cobbled together from it's a flight from Manchester to Tenerife uh, was diverted to Porto after passengers investigate, uh, instigated a brawl on board and saw passengers who were not involved hurt in the process. Allegedly, a drunken man inten uh, intentionally urinated on a seat. Multiple passengers were removed by police in Portugal. Another Ryanair passenger was arrested in Bournemouth after being verbally abused, abusive to staff who had refused to serve him more alcohol on a flight uh, from Spain. But an incident on American Airlines is the one that is currently in the public eye. Alexander Lee faces up to 20 years in a US federal prison after being charged with one count of interference with flight crew members and attendants. 
Wow. Uh, according to an affidavit filed with the uh, complaint on the 21st of September, Lee flew on American Airlines Flight 377 from San Jose uh, del Cabo in Mexico to uh, Los Angeles International Airport approximately 20 minutes after takeoff. Lee exited his seat whilst fl- while flight attendants were conducting food and beverage service. Lee grabbed one flight attendant's left shoulder from behind and asked for coffee moments later lee grabbed both uh, of the flight attendant's shoulders from behind after the flight attendant stepped back and put up a defensive posture lee walked to the front of the airplane he then allegedly loitered near the first class cabin and then sat in an unoccupied aisle near the wall uh, dividing the first class cabin and the main cabin of the aircraft a different flight attendant approached lee and uh, requested that he return to his allotted seat lee did not comply and allegedly stood up and assumed a fighting stance towards the flight attendant by making closed fists with both of his hands which the flight attendant interpreted as a threat around this time lee allegedly swung his arm at the flight attendant and missed the flight attendant decided to report lee's behavior to the pilot turned away from lee and walked towards the front of the airplane at this time lee push uh, rushed forward uh, towards the flight attendant and punched him in the back of the head which was witnessed by several passengers including one who filmed the attack according to the affidavit uh, now I'm going to play you the little video we do actually this have it is, here uh, I've not seen this yes, um, honestly Matt prepare yourself really okay yeah. so I think it's this video here I think there is a bit of a sound Apologize. Is, yeah. I haven't checked the audio so we could be in trouble there but here we go my god okay i i well i gonna we don't need to see any more of that till we say when i honestly when i first saw that i i, I mean i i'm 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 literally astounded Wow. Anyway, after assaulting the flight attendant, Lee fled towards the back of the airplane. Several passengers apprehended him near an exit row. Out of safety concerns, he was moved to a different row and his hands and legs were cuffed. Lee continuously unbuckled his seat belt, causing flight attendants to restrain him in the seat with seat belt extenders. At the FBI, I'm delighted to say, are very much investigating the matter. Um, I'd like I'd like to hear the, the the team's thoughts on this. Nev, we'll start with you. Well, I quite often carry uh, tie wraps or zip ties, ah, as we call yes. them in the US, <laughs> uh, in my bag for cable management reasons, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, perhaps I need to pack a few more, uh, I some think so. longer ones. Yeah, large ones. Possibly. You know, the, the thicker ones. You know that you can. But I do think that the crew have already got some industrial strength ones at hand. Mm. Um, this business has got to stop. Um, I, I don't know. Well, I was just reading the uh, the second part of the story, which says that in 2022, so far in the US, there have been 1,973 reports of unruly passengers, and we're not even at the end of September yet. So. That's a really high number, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and in uh, 2021, the FAA logged nearly 6,000 reports of unruly behaviour. So, yeah, I mean... I think it's obviously 
in a sense it's good that the other passengers are getting involved but it's bad in another way because that can mm. really escalate the situation yeah. and the flight crew are trained in these situations yeah. whereas the average passenger is not um, i must admit though even though i'm very much one who would who would like to leave people to get on with things if i saw you see this is the trouble i suppose when you've got friends who work as cabin crew and if you watch somebody's punch a, a cabin crew member in the back of the head there is no way that i would be able to remain in my seat to ensure that that person wasn't, I mean, that wasn't attacked attack. anymore. That, this that this is it. Oh, that was a proper punch. I mean, you could have done serious damage yeah. there. You could have, you know, caused. I mean, all Armando, sorts of this this happened on your obviously on your home sort of soil as such. What are your thoughts on this as a, as a pilot? Um, well, I mean, we were talking to some of our friends that are cabin crew on different airlines, and it is interesting to hear different airlines and different countries policies concerning an event like this um one particular person we were talking to kind of explained the process of restraining someone and how they have to get permission from uh, an outside control agency and maybe from operations i don't think that's the case here in the states i think it's uh <laughs> it's in the years since 9-11 i think we have re-evaluated our immediate response actions. Uh, I think most passengers now are willing to step up and help, kind of like Matt was talking about. And uh, But that can, as you guys are talking about, lead to escalated confrontations. Um, I think for me, if I was a passenger, let me approach it from two different aspects if i was a passenger i would i would evaluate the, the flight crew the cabin attendants and you know if, if it's two smaller frame women and and depending on who the the assailant is um i think you would probably see a lot more uh, reaction or a quicker reaction i think if you had some uh, male flight attendants on there um people would probably be more apt to let them take care of it it, now, everybody here in the U.S. is trained, I think, all around the world. They are trained on how to deal with these kinds of situations. Um, some of the stuff is coming out in public now, right? We've seen everything from the duct tape to zip ties to seatbelt extenders. Um, there, There's all kinds of ways and equipment on an airplane to clobber somebody over the head, um, <laughs> you know, without without having to introduce weapons or anything like that. But, uh, but it, it's like Micah said in the chat room, this... This is this is very serious. I mean, it is a federal offense. In 2022, there had only been uh, so far 468 enforcement cases where where legal action was taken. 2021, there was 350 uh, enforcement cases, uh, which is pretty low considering the you know 2,000 or so events that have happened or at least have been reported. I think the airlines, I think the regulatory agencies need to do a. a a better job of, of actually taking enforcement action, even for the most minor offenses, um, to make it a deterrent and kind of, geez, I mean, we, we have these, uh, announcements that we are now required to make as, as pilots and cabin crew about, uh, masks. So masks was, was a, a, a catalyst issue for the last year or so. And, and once the mask mandates were lifted, there was a, a, a uh, a statement that ha that is now added to the crew safety brief, the, the aircraft safety brief, saying, "Hey, please respect everybody's 
wishes whether or not to to wear a mask. I think that was an attempt at, at sort of curbing some of that. But I think that statement needs to be a little bit stronger in, hey, messing with the flight attendants and your cabin crew mm. is a federal offense. You will go to jail. You will find yourself in court and you will find yourself detained, um, whether it's in the air or when we get on the ground. Maybe for the time being, you know, that that needs to be added on there that that, hey, this we're not messing around type thing. But I, I, I mean, the bit the bit for me is, is I can't. I mean, I guess I, I, I guess the, the problem is, is I don't have that kind of person's mentality. So it's very difficult for me to try and play devil's advocate in here. I can't think of any scenario why uh, you would why you would do that. That this, this is the bit for me. It's just like I can't c- compute why you would turn nasty like that. You know, when it's cabin crew, I mean, any idiot knows that they're not just there to serve you coffee. You know, they're there to protect you in the event of there being a problem with the aircraft or to make sure you evacuate safely. You know, these guys will put you in front of them, even if you are a moron, to get you off that plane first if there's a chance of surviving. You know, they will literally put their life in front of yours in order to protect you. And then you get morons like that that go and smack them in the back. I I, I can't get my head around it. I wonder if it's the... Uh the alcohol conversation again perhaps and it's yeah. worth knowing of course that a, uh, a scotch on the ground is worth nearly three in the air because of the uh, cabin altitude as well the uh, alcohol has a very different effect when the aircraft has a cabin altitude of you know between six and a half and eight yeah. thousand feet you can uh, have the, the effects of it far quicker that said uh, that is no excuse for what has gone on mm. and if you're talking about a diversion then you're probably talking between 20 and 30 grand, I would imagine, uh, to do that uh, with all the consequences of crew going out of hours, pa- uh, passengers being at the wrong place, you know, uh, visa issues, all, all kinds of things. Um, and I, there's one thing about making the penalties very high and, you know, punitive, but you've still got to deal with the issue in the cabin Mm. and i still think although the cabin crew are trained to a really high standard almost doesn't matter which airline you're talking about i still think that's one of the most challenging things Mm. they would have to deal with even a you know a a regular evacuation if i can call it that (laughs) is more straightforward in some respects because they're trained for known scenarios when when you've got when you've got a dynamic situation with people behaving unreasonably that is quite difficult to deal with, I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. I hate to disagree with you, Matt, but I, I, uh, I will. I don't, I don't think that most people, no, maybe not most people. That's, that's, that's a, not a right statement, but I think there's a large portion of the population that does not understand what cabin crew's role is inside the aircraft. And we see this kind of action in every industry, right? We see it in hospitals. We see it in bus stations. We mm. see it in airports. We see it at restaurants. Um, I don't know. Maybe people just forgot how to people, right? I don't want to be a pessimist, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but Bill's made a very good point in the chat. I'm sorry to interrupt, um, Armando. Bill's made a very good point in the chat room right now. Yeah, yes. maybe they should change yeah. the penalties during a safety brief. Yeah, that's, I kind of agree with that. That's not a daft idea, actually, is it? That's a, that's a great idea. Mm. 
That is a great idea. Just as I mean, I must admit, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was, um, you know, literally a federal offence, and they will essentially throw the book at you and put you in prison if uh, if you do it, and, and absolutely they should. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, think- I mean, they they have the statement for smoking, right? Like they say, yeah. uh, tampering with, disabling, or destroying a fire yeah. a detector or a smoke device is a federal offence. Yeah, I think, I think it would not be a stretch to add a statement saying interference with flight crew duties or verbal or physical assault on flight crew will result in a blah 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 yeah yeah indeed result on a five minute segment on ptuk true true or or, or, or more (laughs) indeed absolutely yes but you know you know the lengths people will get go to for their sort of 10 or 15 minutes worth of fame i mean we can't we can't be encouraging people to do that but i'll say we're gonna we we need to move on but i'm just going to end that with can i just say that you know neville back me up on this the crews that we had on both our flights with ba were fantastic Yes, and they were telling us a couple of stories about things that had happened to them, yeah. which were pretty unpleasant. I'm not going to go into any detail yeah. now, but again, just shows you the sort of things that these guys and girls have to put up with. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not paid a lot of money for this stuff, and yet they're in a safety-critical role, but they have to put up with this other business. And it's just not on, I'm afraid. It really isn't. Indeed. So it's time for the next story, Nev, and we're going to move things up into the into the posh world just for this story aren't we well i, th- I think we should um these uh, this story comes from uh, the points guy.com uh, one mile at a time and simple flying um it says thompson aero seating has revealed that it's seeing a positive increase in demand for its wide body seating products uh, this demand is a strong sign of the resurgence of wide body demand following the pandemic many airlines want to have their wide body fleets equipped with premium seats by 2024 the Boeing 787 and the Airbus A330 are the two most common wide-bodied aircraft that will be upgraded. And we've got a good example of this here because American Airlines is going all in on the premium experience, but with a twist. Uh, the Fort Worth-based carrier on Tuesday unveiled brand new business class and premium economy cabins that will debut in 2024 on newly delivered uh, 787 Dreamliners and Airbus A321 XLR aircraft. The airline will also retrofit two of its most premium planes with new products, though it will come at the expense of first class. So headlining the news is the introduction of a brand new business class product for American. The carrier is installing private suites arranged in a one-to-one configuration in the Ford cabin on all new 787-9 Dreamliners beginning in 2024. The so-called flagship suites will uh, feature a privacy door, a lounge seating option and expanded personal space. All seats face away from the aisle for additional privacy and personal space in reverse herringbone design. When the carrier debuts the Airbus A321 XLR in 2024, this single-aisle jet will feature an all-new business-class product for the carrier. It'll sport 20 uh, flagship suites arranged in a one-and-one configuration, which is similar to JetBlue Airways' new Mint business-class pods on the Airbus A321neo. These seats will also include the sliding privacy doors, but the seats will face into the aisle. 
Uh, whilst the most notable changes will be in business class, American is also introducing a new premium economy recliner on the 787-9 and A321 XLR fleets. Uh, these seats look quite similar to Delta's new custom-designed domestic first-class recliners that debuted uh, earlier this year aboard the Airbus A321neo. They come with new privacy wings and additional storage areas. American's going to install 32 of these seats on the 787-9 Dreamliner and 12 of them on the A321 XLR. So what do we think of this, folks? Um, is that going to be the death of first class, do you think, with these new premium mm. cabins? I mean, I, I, I would argue the reason why perhaps they're even entertaining this idea is perhaps they aren't generating the revenue from first class that they, they want. And uh, let's be honest, uh, if all of the seats were full in full class, all the t in first class all the time, they absolutely wouldn't be doing this. So I, I wonder if this is a sort of a, a reaction to how things are changing, if you see what I mean. So people are willing to put their hand in their pocket for business class and have a little bit more, you know, comfort in the air, um, but perhaps not willing at the moment, certainly, to invest in that first class product, because it is quite a jump up, isn't it, Nev, to go from like business to to first oh, it's usually a, it, it's a big hike that's for yeah. sure and really i i think it's quite difficult with some carriers to really um really appreciate the difference between business and, and first class mm. anyway mm. um and the hike in premium i don't think it's worth it particularly worth it, yeah. bearing in mind they've got to try and get the folks back into the uh, in the air uh, and they won't be doing it i don't think mm. in the first class cabins or, or what were the first class cabins so yeah yeah indeed perhaps premium is a new um way forward mm. yeah, yeah i think i think that i think it is isn't it or certainly like the business class as you say you can sort of mm. you know you can cram in a uh, a few more sort of like of the premium economies by sort of shifting um you know maybe just having only like three or four you know maybe three or four seats of the first class you know push business forward a bit put in a few more premium economy uh, you're probably going to generate more revenue aren't you because you're literally going to have more bums on seats yeah mm. Mm. Armando, you have got the next story all about uh, a petition. Yeah, we actually talked about this a couple of months ago with Republic Airlines uh, petitioning the Air, the Air Force, the uh, FAA, to reduce its 1,500-hour rule so they could uh, squeeze more pilots through the pipeline. Now, that the FAA has actually denied that petition for that exemption from the 1,500-hour rule. Um, the airline asked that uh, graduates from its LIFT Academy, so its Leadership and Flight Training Academy, be allowed to apply for a restricted ATP certificate, allowing them to serve essentially as first officers in a Part 121 operation. They did this by saying that, <laughs> they, that their training was going to be as good as and as rigorous as military training. Now, military pilots, if you have gone through undergraduate pilot training, you are allowed to, or there is an exemption to the 1500-hour rule in that you can apply for your ATP at 750 hours. Um, there are other exemptions to that rule if you have a two-year or a four-year aviation degree, but um, Republic was arguing that its restricted ATP program would, quote, exceed the safety standards of the military uh, restricted ATP. <laughs> um, now, the FAA saying, uh, quote, after full consideration of Republic's petition for exemption and the public comments, which there was a, a at least a 30-day public comment period, 
they, the FAA has determined that this relief is not in the public interest and would adversely affect safety, which, hey, for once, I agree with the FAA. Uh, they did find that the, so the supporting materials and lift historical data does not sufficiently support Republic's claim that the our, uh, restricted ATP program is su sufficiently compatible, uh, comparable to the training program of any military branch. Um, they also, uh, Republic also argued that in its in its petition filed last April that its program would um, provide a service to the public by producing more pilots. Uh, to satisfy this, uh, what they called a, con a continuing commercial aviation demand, right? So pilot shortage, in other words, um, they argued that that this would alleviate that and increase safety that way. Now, I read through the 11-page uh, FAA denial, and and some of the parts that I extracted out of this is is they they certainly disagreed with <laughs> with Republic Airlines that lift. Uh, the lift academy would 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 rival military training and they did they did that by saying that the military's training which as you guys can imagine anybody listening to this podcast can imagine you know there, there's a lot of focus on aerobatics on formation flying decision making dynamic aviation situations uh, crew resource management much less combat right um there's no way that that a that a, a civilian flight academy can replicate that kind of experience uh, development in, in pilots. Um, arguably flying, they were going to do this with Diamond 40s and 42s. That aircraft is not the same as flying a T-38. <laughs> it's not the same as flying even a T-6 Texan, right, which is a very powerful uh, turboprop trainer, but much less you know, F-16s, uh, F-15s, a C-130, a B-1 bomber. Uh, they, 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 almost incredible that they would actually claim that they that their training program in a diamond could rival this um overall the faa just said it's not in the interest of public safety uh they also expressed a concern that had they granted republic airlines this that other airlines would now start following uh, the same uh, and start applying for these petitions to reduce the 1500 hour rule <laughs> um and then, and then the last part of that I plucked out of their denial was uh, the perceived pilot shortage. And, and, and I think you guys would probably agree with this. The FAA said that it is not in the business of creating regulations to um, to address industry and economic shortages. Right. The, the FAA's role in all of this is for safety, and and that they are not going to to create regulation to address what is a, a, an economic and a business uh, problem. Um, so- yeah, I'll I tell you what, I, I was listening and reading all that with great interest. Here's a question though, and I'm not trying to be controversial, obviously. <laughs> Isn't the FAA's role though, to be the promoter and the regulator of aviation in the US. And this is why they have a view on this. And the, I detect a, perhaps a little bit of backpedaling on that position. Um, I don't know that, you know, I would have to check the FAA's charter. I don't know that promotion of aviation, I've ever seen that, maybe promotion of safety in aviation. Well, yeah. um, it is a good point because everybody knows who the FAA is. 
I, I, I certainly agree with you on that, that, um, you know, that the news looks to the FAA for industry guidance. Comment. Um, so I, I agree with that. Um, and, the, and there's other countries like over in Europe, you can, you can, you know, get into a 737 at 500 hours. Um, so there is data overseas supporting safe operations. Uh, I think here in the U.S. there there were you know obviously everybody talks about the Colgan Air crash. Um, I think that was just the the kind of straw that broke the camel's back on that. The um, yeah that there's a lot of push um, for the rule to stand, and I think even within the industry, the general consensus is that this 1500 hour rule is a good rule. Um, it has, you know, produced m- m- a little bit more experience. And you look at guys like Nick and Jeff and Pip and Al, like those guys have, you know, close to 10,000 hours. It's not over 10,000 hours at, or 20 or 30,000 hours. The difference to me as a pilot between 750 hours and 1500 hours, because I remember those days and I remember striving to reach the, the ATP minimums um that's a long hard slog to get through and you learn a lot in those 750 hours i look back to myself as a 750 hour pilot and and i know that from 250 hours when i got my commercial to 750 hours it's just like a driver's license it was that was my license to learn and make some mistakes and really i learned a lot from 750 when i went to a part 135 operator flying a small turboprop um to that 1500 hours when I, when I got my ATP, there was a lot of learning that happened to that and, or in that time period. And I, and I, I agree that people should have that experience, but that, that's, you know, my own personal opinion. True. Yeah. It's, um, I was going to ask how many hours you think you've got logged now, Armando, but that's probably, <laughs> that's probably not a good question to ask. Uh, no, it's, it's not, Comparatively, it's not I, five, five, six thousand hours, something like that total. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> On many different types as well. Well, yes, this is it. Go over. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's like 5,500, something like that. It's wow. not a lot. You talk to the list. Some of our listeners are well into the uh, high teens, if not in 20,000. Right? John Jester, how many hours you got? Come on, he's in the chat room. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, next story on the uh, list here is all from uh, viewfromthewing.com. That's a new one. Uh, simpleflying.com. And it's all about Delta Airlines testing dual jet bridge boarding in Cincinnati. Hmm. Uh, Delta Airlines is trying out a new way to save time during the boarding of its aircraft. The carrier is testing an approach using two gates for boarding the process of its Boeing 737 aircraft to see if this has any long-term potential. According to a report by View from the Wing, Delta is currently trying out the new method at Cincinnati Airport as it's a much smaller station for Delta than the hub it used to be. This means the airport has an extra gate to accommodate the procedure. One tweeter chirped about the experience using the adjacent gates to board. So gate B5 set at CVG boarded rows 1 to 21 as usual and gate B3 boarded rows 22 to 37 from the rear door. 
Delta isn't the first airline to use the dual-gate approach for its boarding process. Lufthansa also uses the method on some of its narrow-body aircraft. And recently, we ran a story on the show about India's budget carrier Indigo that started deplaning passengers from both sides of the aircraft using three exits instead of two. Two air bridges is quite a good idea, actually. I suppose if you wanted to board the two separate parts of the aircraft as in the you know 1 to 21 and 21 or 22 to 37 i suppose using a uh, a a gate at one end back end of the aircraft and front end of the aircraft is not a bad idea to save time i mean it'll save time but surely that's going to be quite a financial commitment as well i mean you've you know using two gates i mean these gates cost the airlines money they're, they're not cheap are they these things no no, I don't know how long it also it takes to 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 um, to put the air the air bridges on and remove the air bridges from the aircraft. You know when the aircraft yeah. is ready to depart. It's interesting to see how long it takes time wise to uh, to do that process. Yeah, I mean, they could age to board our three nineteen in Jersey the other day, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You I should have ju- seen the steps that we had to walk up. But the, the actual air stairs were the size of a house. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, gosh, they were big then. Yeah, OK. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, John's very kindly put some, like, pros and cons. Obviously, as you mentioned, they're faster boarding, less aircraft on the ground, um, you, less AOG equals more revenue, less stress during boarding for the passengers. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely some big pros there. But cons, obviously, as I mentioned there, uh, using two gates, that's a lot of real estate for for uh, quite the commitment for the airport as well, isn't it, to be able to do that. I mean, obviously, not everybody, uh, uh, you know, will do that. But uh, more gates equals more staff equals more cost, obviously. Uh, Can Delta turn the aircraft effectively, uh, excluding passenger boardings and disembark to make this procedure work? Uh, Less scheduled aircraft on the ground, more pressure on crew on and off the aircraft, of course. But do the pros outweigh the cons? That is the question. What do we think? Well, I remember um, the last time I flew on Lufthansa, which was quite a while ago, they did have a very good boarding system where uh, they were uh, boarding from the rear of the aircraft forwards uh, for the first half of the aircraft, but they were boarding window seat passengers first, followed by the middle, followed by the aisle. And that did work quite well, I've got to say. And it will be interesting to see if anybody else kind of develops that idea. Um, but it's, yeah, it's quite a challenge, I think. Mm. Um, as we all know, getting on the air, off and on the aircraft is the most difficult part of the whole procedure. So, um, and different airlines and different handling agents will work in different ways, won't they? So. Yeah, true. Very I think true. over the years, we've seen a lot of different boarding methods, right? Like, haven't we, t- we've talked about it on the show where we're technically the most efficient boarding method is from like the outside in, right? And of course, nobody's going to follow that because you would have to board the, the A and F's first and then, and then the C's and uh, E's next, and then the D's and E's next. That would be so confusing. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I, I remember some airlines have gone back to front. Um, two gate, two gates. Uh, good point by John. In that now you have to now you need double the staffing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So I don't know. I mean, time is money. I think more recently I've waited more for cleaning crews 
to get because now because yeah. now post pandemic we implemented these these cleaning protocols so most of the time we're actually just waiting on the cleaning crew uh to get through the whole airplane and, and clean it before everybody can start boarding but um, i want to go back to the to the last conversation that we had that um captain jeff sent me a text he's at twenty three thousand two hundred and seventy five hours <laughs> wow and, and two minutes two minutes right <laughs> very important obviously mustn't forget that yeah yeah the the, the two minutes it puts him over Cru- the top crucial. into the crucial the the, uh, the star and the wreath that's why he's uber capped he's commodore jeff in my book yeah commodore. absolutely ain't Love that me. the truth ain't that the truth oh my word um Yes. Anyway, but blimey, I'll just think that figure now in my head. That's just amazing. Ooh. Yeah. Hold on. Richard Adams said palletized passengers are the way to go. Have you guys Palet- seen those? <laughs> yeah. Have, so have you seen those where the, there's pods? It's almost like a, a, a airplane version of a sky crane where people will load. If anybody's been to Washington Dallas Airport, there's like these buses that shuttle you. They're about the size of an airplane cabin. I think it would be interesting. And I, and I have seen this this kind of futuristic concept but it's not going to materialize but where people board these pods and then the pod gets loaded onto the airplane um in this crazy you know sky crane looking thing maybe in the future we're going to have something like that i can't get my head around that no, no before we, <laughs> before we move on to the next story with matt we all know on this show that the only way to board any aircraft is starting off with seat 1a right okay okay uh, I want to know from Nev. So you board first all the time. One A. What do you do for the thirty-five minutes that it takes for everybody? Drink champagne, just, darling. Come do you just on. sit there with your with your monocle? Do you just sit there with your monocle? Yes, yeah, so I, I do. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, my, uh, my my butler is in Quite economy. Right, absolutely. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. No, champagne, I, I, darling. Surely. Yes, I, I just watch the boarding process from my seat, uh, watching in, amaz- the- in amazement of how much luggage is being brought onto the aircraft and why it won't fit into the overhead lockers, Mm. uh, especially on the Embraer 190 that I was on the other day, which is a little bit compact. All the seating's great, but there's just not a lot of room up top. And that was... uh, that was quite interesting, I have to say. Mm. But uh, no, I, I, I just like I'm a good people watcher, actually. So, uh, and um, they'll probably hear me tutting and hissing <laughs> through my teeth. Stuff Lovely, like yes. While supping a glass of champagne, no doubt. It's the way forward. Let's move on oh, before we get sued. Yes, <laughs> Laura, you've got <laughs> you've got a story uh, about uh, some captain actually fleeing the country, haven't you? Oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it just says bite size on the graphic. Here. Yeah, very uh, uh, very quickly, I've got a few updates and a, a little bite-sized piece of news from the last couple of weeks. Various sources on that, uh, and I'll make sure they're in the show notes for you later on. Uh, so we'll just whiz through these. Uh, Ethiopian Airlines captain flees the country. Remember the story we ran, story seven apparently on episode 423. Go and look it up uh, about both Ethiopian airline pilots falling asleep at the aircraft. Oh yes, I remember that one. Yes. Uh, uh, as as the aircraft approach uh, Addis Ababa. The update is that the Bolivian captain of that flight, who had been who had been at the airline for four years, decided to flee the country the same morning. Uh, uh, the same morning, specifically, he took a connecting flight to Rio de Janeiro that same day, and then shortly thereafter submitted his resignation by email. 
probably a good shout there, the young Nigerian first officer who had been at the airline for one year, cooperated with the investigation in person. He has now been he has now been terminated from the airline. Uh, Emirates and United, you probably remember some of these stories. We were indeed right. Story three, episode 425, Emirates and United Airlines did indeed start a code share. Uh, in fact, I, I spotted it through the Twitter, wasn't it? There was loads of little weird Twitter handshake type sort of things going on. Not everyone was excited about the partnership, however... Uh, five unions representing various parties within uh, the United Airlines released a letter saying Labour is watching. The letter warned that the absence of independent Labour unions in the UAE could lead to Emirates taking advantage of the partnership and that the unions in the US will demand the highest Labour standards are adhered to across all partnerships. They are prepared to take necessary action to protect long-term career security. Project Kitty Hawk. Uh, Kitty Hawk signals its imminent exit from uh, Evtol, is it? Aircraft Innovation. We talked about uh, this Evtol uh, that was being looked into by the military. They they uh, received airworthiness status from the military, but the project is being wound down. Kitty Hawk uh, are also the joint owner of Whisk Aero in conjunction with Boeing. Comac, that's uh, China's home-built single-aisle passenger jet, the C919. Uh, did we, I'm sure we saw something like that at Farnborough, didn't we? Um, there was definitely... No. Um, I'm sure we saw a... Anyway, uh, the, the C919 aimed at rivaling planes made by Airbus and Boeing uh, could be certified by Chinese regulators as early as September the 19th, uh, local media has reported. Certification by aviation officials in China would finally pave the way for Com uh, Comac's C919. Well, obviously, it wasn't that aircraft we saw then, but I'm sure we definitely saw something very similar uh, to start commercial flights some 14 years after development began. An initial uh, test flight took place in 2017. But oh, that was drawn... the A220. Oh, it was the A220, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a Chinese aircraft we saw. No. Okay, anyway. Uh, but... Similar, very similar. Yeah. Okay, but uh, drawn out... Uh, sir... oh, sorry, lost my place there. That's An it. initial test flight took place back in 2017 but the drawn out certification efforts meant Comac missed a deadline of delivering the first plane by the end of 2021. Uh, New Zealand Air New Zealand uh, recently launched their 17.5 hour flight from Auckland to New York. The flight has already had issues though having had to divert to Fiji yesterday on return leg due to the stronger than anticipated headwinds. Other flights have had to offload passenger baggage to make more room for fuel uh, to ensure the 787 will complete the trip due to similar headwinds. Uh, EWR no longer NYC, it says with a line through it. Starting October 2022, Newark will only be referred to as EWR and it will lose its NYC code. Currently, IATA classify the airport as being in uh, the NYC area to ease with booking and fares. These codes get updated periodically. EWR WR's new airport code will also see will also affect passengers' ability to make flight changes without incurring 
penalty fees. IATA told Travel Plus Leisure that uh, currently many airlines allow flight changes within the same airport code without fees, so passengers will easily uh, so passengers could easily switch their ticket from JFK to LGA, for example, at no extra cost. With EWR requiring a new airport code, though, travellers arriving or departing in EWR may have to pay if they want to change their ticket to another New York airport. Uh, this is kind of like when you're booking a flight in London, by the way, you can search for flights using LON code. Uh, it includes like the London group of airports. So Gatwick, Heathrow and Stansted, Luton will all come up in that LON code search. So there we are. That's it. We're, you're up to date. <laughs> what are you going to say? Up to date with the news? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Matt. Yeah, I'll go and find my bed, shall I? I'll go and find my yeah, news bed to play. Have a scotch, <laughs> Moving swiftly on, then it's, oh, it's five past eight already, guys. Moving swiftly on with the next story, Nev, and um, well, I mean, the banning four engine aircraft. Yeah, this is interesting. It's on Reuters.com, AV Web, and One Mile at a Time. It says that Israel will ban Boeing 747 and similar aircraft with four engines as of March the 31st, 2023, to reduce noise and air pollution, its airports authority said on Sunday. As part of a broader plan underdeveloped to improve the surrounding environment, the authority said that it already told airlines that they would not be able to land large airplanes at Ben Gurion airport near tel aviv as of the 2023 summer season uh, the, the the directive is mainly for cargo aircraft since most if not all carriers have stopped using the 747 and other four engine aircraft en route to israel uh, flag carrier ll has already retired its fleet of 747s and uses triple uh, sevens and 787 aircraft on long-haul routes competitors also use the uh, boeing planes or comparable Airbus ones to Ben-Gurion, although the LL uh, 747s are still used for cargo. Operation of aircraft with four engines will be allowed in exceptional cases and only with a special permit. Well, I remember going on a 747 to Ben-Gurion and back on an LL aircraft back in the day. I think it must have been a 747-200, I would imagine. Oh, blimey. Oh, and, and I'm quite sure that there will be exceptions in place, uh, exemptions, I should say, in place for Air Force One, for example. Oh, yes. Uh, very likely. Yes. 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 Or, or our C-17s, right? Oh, we could just mm. shut two engines down. Does that count? Yeah. Ooh, good question. <laughs> Don't know. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Go on, imagine, yeah, a... imagine a B-52 going in there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, dread, the dreaded seven-engine approach into Ben Korean. Um, uh, interesting that this happens, you know, shortly after LL retires at 7.47. So, um, Bill has a good point in the chat room, which is uh, actually John also came up with the same point, which is, is this perhaps an anti-A380 move targeted at Emirates? <gasps> <laughs> Ah, the conspiracy theory begins. Mm. Um, John Jester says in the chat room, and I think, uh, you know, we kind of came up with the same uh, conclusion that actually a 747-8 is actually quieter than 777. So mm. the noise argument to this is, mm, I don't know if it Questionable. holds any water. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. And then uh, and fuel economy on a per-passenger basis. I think uh, I think technically an 8380 is is per passenger per seat is more fuel efficient if it's an environmental move right than than uh than a, going, uh, 
777. Going back to what you were saying, though, did, did they did they fly the uh, A380? Do Emirates fly the A380 into into that area? Uh, they've well, they've just recently started flying triple uh, sevens, I think. Um, okay, right, yeah. But the triple sevens are two engine, don't they? They did. Yeah, aren't they? Are the triple triple seven. Yes, the triple seven is two inches. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh. There we go. Right. And uh, we couldn't do a show without having a story uh, in the show, as we do seem to have a lot these days, about electric aircraft. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's going to feature uh, as strongly as Ryanair features on our show. <laughs> um, no, Air Canada, this is from Aviation Today and a couple other different sources. Air Canada just signed a purchase agreement for uh, Hart Aerospace uh, ES-30 electric aircraft. Um, this is a 19-seat version of a, a of a, sorry, they have replaced their 19-seat version, the ES-19, with a 30-seat battery-powered ES-30. Oh, I always want, I always want Neil Cluffley's uh, viewpoints on this mm. whenever we talk about hear him shouting yeah. at the uh, the <laughs> screen now. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just threw his beer at at the uh, <laughs> yeah. large screen YouTube feed, which he is watching us. Hello, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, anyway, Air Canada has uh, a five million dollar investment to to purchase uh, thirty of these ES thirty aircraft. Um, it's a reserve hybrid configuration where a pair of uh, turbo generators can be used to during cruise on longer flights to complement the electrical power by the the actual generators and the batteries uh, on a battery charge alone the s30 is being developed to fly about a range of 200 kilometers or 124 miles at a at a max altitude of 20,000 feet um, the company also specified that its extended range of uh, 400 kilometers with 30 passengers and the abil uh, ability to fly up to 800 kilometers with 25 passengers um the uh, people over at air canada are expecting the es30's battery system to have a charging time of about 30 to 50 minutes so they'll be able to turn them the aircraft in about the same time as as a traditional uh, powered aircraft um, according to michael rousseau the president and ceo of air canada they said that the introduction into our fleet of es30 electronic electronic electric aircraft from Hart Aerospace will be a step forward in meeting their goal of net zero emissions by the year 2050. Air Canada is already supporting new technologies uh, such as sustainable aviation fuels and carbon capture to address climate change, and they are now reinforcing their commitment by investing in this revolutionary aircraft technology. So here you go. Both, uh, both of these companies are committed to you know this electric aircraft we're seeing there lots of airlines now sort of investing in future technologies whether it's a supersonic the boom that we were talking about with two airlines now on board with that and uh more and more airlines signing up for uh, evtol and uh, urban mobility platforms and and now electric aircraft so uh, like i said before i think this is the next sort of leap in aviation that we're going to make you know that we went from uh, from uh, the Wright brothers to to you know 1930s styles airplanes to to jets in the 50s, and I, I think this is the next the next evolution of aviation. So we'll see. We'll see when the batteries get better and <laughs> stop exploding. 
So, moving on to the next story. This one comes to us from aerotime.aero, airlive.net, aviation24.be. And uh, two commercial flights almost land at a French naval base instead of Brest Airport. So, a Voltaire Airbus A319 began to approach the land... Oh, I can see why John gave me this story. To approach the land of Vassiao, land an airport, a naval base anyway, in Brittany, France, before going around and landing at the correct airport. The aircraft, registered Echo Charlie Mike Tango Delta, was carrying out domestic flight B72820 from Ajaccio Napoleon Bonaparte Airport in Corsica to Brest Bretagne Airport in Brittany on September the 10th this year. Two hours into the flight, as it was overflying the city of Morlaix, the aircraft seemingly modified its trajectory and started an initial approach towards Landabasiao Naval Air Base, 22 kilometres or 13 miles east of its destination airport. At about 1,300 feet, the flight crew discontinued their approach and initiated a go-around. They eventually corrected their trajectory and landed without incident at Brest Airport around 20 minutes later. The French Aeronautical Information Service cites the proximity of Brest and Lannevisau as a potential issue during the approach. On September the 19th, just nine days after the first incident, another crew made the same misjudgment. An Air France Airbus A321 Foxtrot Golf Mike Zulu Alpha was operating domestic flight Air France 7738 between Paris, Charles de Gaulle and Brest, and the pilots performed a visual left turn towards runway 07 of Landvisiao Naval Air Base. They aborted the approach and continued to breast for a safe landing. So, landing at the wrong airport. I think we've heard about um, um, aircraft landing at uh, the wrong place before, haven't we? Well, sure, it happens all the time, but 13 miles isn't really close. (laughs) That's pretty far away. And I don't understand how this kind of stuff happens in this day and age with, with our advanced Mm. FMSs and flight yeah. management systems and and really most carriers you're you're almost always your I don't know how European rules but we all almost always back everything up with an instrument approach even on a visual um, especially an air carrier operation so it is not uh, do you think it's one of those confirmation bias things Armando where one of the crews says to the other one oh that's the airport there isn't it oh yes there it is um, yeah and it's not, of course, if they're, if they're yeah. not paying attention to the instrumentation properly. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of internet jokes about airport insight. You have the airport insight. Yeah, we got it insight. I got something insight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you'd have thought computers somewhere would be going absolutely bananas at you for being, you know, you know, thirteen miles is quite a quite a even at altitude there there's quite a noticeable difference on gps services if you if you like i mean something i don't know i i perhaps perhaps as i say they were just doing visuals or whatever and uh, there was no technology guys, in play but remember guys this was an air france flight what does that mean and well we ran a story didn't we a few weeks back do you remember the air france crew that were having a um, oh, they're having a disagreement with each other, weren't they? Yes. On the flight deck, perhaps these guys were the having a chat. Yes, having on a, the flight deck. a heated discussion about the way forward. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, oh, have I, you programmed the FMS. Yes, I have programmed the FMS. You know, right, yeah, okay, you lovely. 
Oh. And you're supposed to verify all those things. Every time that yeah. one crew member punches in or changes anything, you're, the other crew member is really supposed to verify. And, and um, some of the uh, air carriers here in the United States, you're, you're supposed to actually verbalize that. It's a, mm. it's a call out that, you know, if you're going to mess if you're going to mess with something in the FMS or send, yeah. change something in the MCP, you're, you have to kind of point to it and announce it. So um, I'm not sure where they're going wrong on this, especially twice yeah. uh, in, in a short span. So Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. Very strange. Uh, nice, indeed. nice comment from, <laughs> nice comment from Bill, Bill in the chat room. Can you see that one guys? There you go. It's there. Uh, Bill uh, Bill says uh, they're they're known as Air Chance for a reason. Is uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my, <laughs> I like that one. Very very good, Bill. Very good, Bill. Uh, moving on to the next story. And Nev, I mean, I've heard of freebies given away on flights. You know, you get your your free this and sort of amenity kits. But this is taking it to another level. Well, I, I couldn't believe it. And I read this story. Um, it's from thepoke.co.uk and today.com. Uh, passengers on their way to Hawaii from Long Beach, California, on Friday, September the sixteenth, were surprised with an in-flight ukulele lesson and jam session uh, those aboard the flight which was a six-hour trip on southwest airlines how can you get a six-hour trip out of a 737 anyway must have been not very full i would imagine um, got a free new mitchell mu40 soprano ukulele from guitar center and a free first class um which was taught uh, and a free class which was taught at 30,000 feet above the ocean. Southwest Airlines said in a release the company was happy to celebrate Hawaiian culture and underscore our everyday commitment to serve and celebrate the spirit of Aloha. However, the PR department at Southwest were clearly not ready for the roasting that took place when anyone posts anything on the internet. Um, and uh, some examples of uh, some of these on, on Twitter. Um, one says, <laughs> okay. the, old, the ultimate cluster pluck. Indeed. Uh, by the way, we have a quiet car. Oh, that that came from Amtrak, yeah, which is our that. real service. Yeah, yeah, I was going to yeah. say yes. I love um, that. Yeah. Uh, this gives me more anxiety than a manager announcing. Okay, we'll just go around the group and say a few words about. Oh, it. but with more ukuleles. <laughs> I hate it when they do that at work. Uh, I liken this to someone giving my kids glitter. <laughs> <laughs> and to quote the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw, hell is full of musical amateurs. <laughs> and finally, someone says, I thought armed sky marshals were meant to prevent this sort of terror. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Spokesperson for Southwest, Alicia Foster, acknowledged that the ukulele programme made use of the plane's PA system, but she was quick to note that the whole thing took about 20 minutes on roughly a six-hour flight, and customers were encouraged to put their instruments away when it ended. I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, can I just say, I'm sorry, I had to say that, in, in, in the notes in the bottom here, John's put, do we think Logan Air need to, to look at perhaps doing bagpipe oh lessons? Oh, my word. <laughs> can you imagine? imagine? Can I? <laughs> yes. Can oh, you imagine? Okay. Oh dear, that would be so much fun. Um, so, how many, how many of these ukuleles then on board this particular flight do we think ended up on eBay the following day? Oh, quite a few, I'd imagine. No, I don't. 
I think no, I I I like this story. The hope the first of all, Southwest Airlines is very proud of its service to Hawaii. Um, Bob Mills, who has been on our show, uh, was on the initial proving runs for Southwest Airlines, and he was one of the first captains to get checked out in the seven thirty seven to go over to Hawaii. But the Hawaiian culture is something that deserves uh, it deserves notoriety, and it's such a a cool um culture to get to know and i think they they take a lot of pride in in their culture the the native hawaiians and um they uh yeah you know i think this is a pretty cool story carlos but, i've got an idea for, i've got a suggestion for you um i'd like you to pop this pop picture up on facebook uh for our caption this competition next oh, week oh yeah we could and do, I've, we? i'd be fascinated to see what we get back from our wonderful listeners i'd love to do it now but we don't really have time yeah, so we'll, may, maybe you could do this as a caption this yeah. for during the week and we'll we'll, we'll come back to this story next week <laughs> So that uh, concludes our commercial news stories for this week. It's safe to say that it's been a been a mixed bag this week of uh, of news stories in the aviation uh, sector. Uh, but uh, coming up next, we're going to hand things over to uh, Nev to introduce this very special part of the show. Yes, yeah, so I'm very pleased to see say that we have uh, got the services of Nick Anderson once again, our intrepid interviewer that we subcontract from another podcast from time to time. And when it comes to interviewing military pilots, there's no one better, I don't think, than, than Nick. He's got a great knack of making his interviewee feel at home. And this is no exception either. Uh, we are interviewing Chris Burwell, who's written this book called Nine Lives. And uh, it's, gonna, it's a six-part series, which we're pr premiering uh, tonight. Uh, and there'll be uh, the whole thing will be available on YouTube eventually as a complete set. And Chris has very kindly um, signed this book. Uh, and at the end of the sixth episode, we will be uh, offering it uh, as part of a competition. Uh, so we're going to run the uh, VT now, and uh, I really hope you enjoy it. It's a fascinating interview with lots of lots of great stuff, as you would expect uh, from Nick and from Chris. I'm here with Chris Burwell, a retired RAF group captain who, amongst other things, flew Harriers for the Air Force, commanded Number 1 Squadron and was the station commander of the famous wartime RAF bomber station Scampton, which launched the Dam Busters raid on the dams of the Ruhr Valley. After leaving the RAF, amongst other things, he went on to work for the company Cobham, who were providing operational targets for the UK military along with electronic countermeasures and flight calibration of airfield navigation equipment. Uh, many thanks indeed for giving us your time, Chris. I wonder if you could start by describing what your book, Nine Lives, is about. Well, thank you very much for coming to interview me, Nick. It's, um, the book, Nine Lives, is basically about my career in aviation. So. It doesn't cover my whole life story, it's not intended to, it's really a book that covers what I got up to in almost 50 years in aviation. So it starts with uh, when I joined the cadet force at school and my early flying, gliding in, in this case, and then on to powered flying with a flying scholarship, then into the Air Force, what I got up to into the Air Force over 30 years, and then as you mentioned going into Cobham for 12 years, at which point I retired. Uh, but then got dragged out of retirement to go and work down in Spain for four years. So my last four years in aviation were actually down in Spain with a commercial flying training school. So I spanned military, 
through to uh, Cobham, which was military support, and then into commercial aviation on the flying training side. Your start in the Air Force um, seems to parallel most of that generation who were keen enough to become cadets and engage in all that was available to them, because you've already mentioned your gliding courses and flight yes. scholarships. Uh, things are somewhat different nowadays. Do you think enough's being done to encourage young people to take up a military flying career? Well, I, it's a very difficult one because we all know money is tight these days. Um, I can look back on my time and probably the same for you, Nick, and see that um, there was a lot of opportunity for us. Um, I did some gliding at school. Um, I then did a flying scholarship. And I'm not sure that there is that much available these days in that respect. And when I um, look at university air squadrons, it's amazing how little flying the um, guys who are interested in the Air Force seem to get on university air squadrons. I mean, in my day, I think they were getting at least 30 hours a year flying. I think it's a lot less than that these days. So I, I think, you know, we all know money is tight. It's it, defence, like all other sectors of, um, of government, is very tight. And it's a matter of making the money go where it can best be spent. And particularly, it must go to the front line. Uh, but that is not to say that we shouldn't be doing what we can to recruit the best people into the Royal Air Force. You did uh, your training at RAF College Cranwell, but I read in the book you seem to have done quite a lot without much supervision, particularly <laughs> down potholes. How do you compare those character building days with what might be allowed today? Well, it's, that's a very good question, Nick, because when I look back on, when I, when I got to write about this in the book, I was thinking, did we really do those things without supervision? And the fact is, we did. Uh, we, we had an officer who oversaw what we were doing with the potholing club, but a very good friend of mine, Dave Hall and myself, basically got the potholing club going again. And we hadn't done a lot of potholing, we'd done a bit, but we decided that there was this club, it was more or less defunct, but we got it going. There was a senior flight cadet who took an interest and he was nominally in charge, but Dave and myself were the drivers there. And we used to go up to Yorkshire Dales for the weekends and just go potholing. And at Cranwell, they knew what we were doing, but there was absolutely no supervision whatsoever. We were responsible for it. We were junior cadets. We'd only been in the Air Force a matter of a few months and we were off doing this completely unsupervised. And then at the end of the first year at Cranwell, uh, we went on an expedition down to the Ligurian Alps in Italy. And again, I think there were sort of six of us. We got the minibus from the college, piled ourselves into it in some potholing gear and went off down to the Ligurian Alps and spent a week down on the, um, on the Mediterranean. We did do a bit of potholing, but we also spent quite a lot of time on the beach and eating pizzas and things like that. We had a great time, but it, it, were, it was character building stuff. We were like 18, 19 years old and we were given that responsibility, which I think is great. And I think these days, perhaps, we tend to mollycoddle people a bit too much. We don't give them enough slack to get out and do these, these uh, challenging things on their own. At the end of your Valley course on Nats, you have experienced more than your share of tragedy, and perhaps you could go into that a little. You talk as if it was an inevitable part of military flying of the era. Do you still think like that, or do you think that more could have been done to save lives? <sighs> Difficult question, Nick. I, I, yes, I have experienced things. We'd lost uh, one of our cadets at Cranwell. Uh, he was actually not on my entry. He was two entries ahead of me. 
And at Cram at uh, Valley, we had a mid-air collision which killed two of the guys on my course. Um, so yeah, we were subjected to this. Um, it is, yes, an inevitability of military flying. It doesn't just apply to fast jets, it applies across the board because you are asking people to take sometimes some fairly complex um, technology-breaking aircraft into the air and do some very demanding things with it. So it's inevitable that occasionally things will go wrong. It may be with the aircraft, it may be pilot error or crew error or whatever, but these things do happen. It's not like flying an airliner you're operating quite often in a difficult, demanding environment. Um, but if you go back 20 years before I was at Valley, they were losing a lot more people. I mentioned in the book about my flight commander when I was um, a first tour instructor at Linton News. He'd written off two meteors in two weeks at one point. I mean, these things happened. He survived, but a lot of guys in those days didn't. The meteor was quite a dangerous aircraft, asymmetrically. It's, most people are probably aware. And a lot of people were killed, um, just flying meteors and vampires and the early jets around. And a lot more than were being killed in my day. But even so, it was a fact of life that you were going to lose friends and colleagues and people you knew quite well. And in the Harrier Force, that was certainly the case. Could we be doing more about it or should we have been doing more about it? Um, a very difficult one. Again, as the years went on in my time in the military, we got very focused on trying to stay safe. I'm not saying it wasn't happening when I was at Valley and doing my early training, but flight safety grew during the time that I was in the military quite rightly. People were aware of the risks and a lot was done to mitigate those risks. Um, but as I say, by nature of the environment in which you're operating, it is a risky business and always has been. The technology of the aircraft were improving all the time as yes. well, though that must have helped. And of course, the technology in the escape systems. Correct. Right, you know, the yeah. days of 1990 ejector seats, all yes. worse, had yes. gone by the time we started training people on the Hawk, for example. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. You considered the Harrier as the top aircraft to be posted onto. Mm. Now, why was that? Well, it was revolutionary. Uh, it was when I was going through flying training, it was just coming into service. Um, in fact, the Harrier came into service in 1969, the same year I joined the Air Force. So as the Harrier was built up, obviously they used experienced pilots on it initially. But by the time I went through training and by the time I was at Valley in 1972, they were starting to take the first first tour pilots onto the Harrier. And in fact, two of the guys on my course were posted to the Harrier. Um, and so it was a revolutionary aircraft. It was brand new. It was very exciting. You know, you could just see it was going to be an amazing aircraft to be involved with. So it was, it was a great thing to aim for. Now, a lot of pilots would have been frustrated to then be posted from training to become a QFI yeah. instead of a frontline pilot, but you seem to accept it with equanimity. Weren't you a bit frustrated? No, I wasn't actually. Um, it's, it's, it's strange looking back on it, but I actually enjoy my flying training very much from the time I started on Chipmunks up at Perth on the Flying Scholarship right the way through. I had a very good run through training, I had, uh, I had a lot of respect for my flying instructors. I thought they were all very good. I had a diverse, they all had diverse backgrounds. 
Uh, I had one bad experience at Valley with a flying instructor. Otherwise, I had a great experience. And I thought if I could aspire to that level of professionalism and help people come through and learn how to fly, that would be a good thing to do. And I thought it'd be great to do it straight away. And it's, it would be a bit of an accolade. Now, also coupled with that was the fact that I could see that I was not going to be top of the course at Valley because my um, very good friend Paul Hopkins was definitely going to be up there. Um, I wasn't going to be there. And there was another guy on the course, a guy called Bob Mason, who was also very good. And in fact, as it turned out, Paul and Bob came first and second on the course. I can't remember which order it is. It doesn't matter. I came third on the course. There weren't three Harrier postings anyway, so I wasn't going to go to Harriers. So if I had finished up going to another aircraft type at that stage, I would almost certainly never have flown the Harrier. Um, because you tended to go, if you went to Phantoms like you did, then you tended to stay in the air defence world and finished up on F3s. Um, if I'd gone to Jaguar, there was very little chance I would have crossed over to Harrier. Um, you would never have wanted to fly the Jaguar, surely. <laughs> <laughs> um, no comment there, no comment. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you seem to have enjoyed your short time as a cure fighter. It's mm. only two and a half years, mm. lucky man. Mm. But you don't talk a lot about your successful students. Were there any standout pilots who you trained? Um, not personally. Um, I had a checkered, the students I had, checkered um, outcome, to be honest. Uh, one or two of them didn't make it. Uh, one of them got into the fighter stream. I tell the story in the book, actually. He got into the fighter stream at Valley, but failed to get through the Valley course. Uh, my most successful one finished up as a search and rescue helicopter pilot, to be honest. Oh, a very noble job. Yes, very noble. And he, he had a good career doing search and rescue uh, for a number of years with the Royal Air Force. So, yes, it was a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, but I would say at this point... Uh, there were two standout students that went through um, with me uh, whilst I was instructing on the courses that we looked after. Uh, one of them was Clive Loder, um, who, who's, who became the uh, Commander-in-Chief of Air Command. He was the first Commander-in-Chief of Air Command as it moved from Strike Command to Air Command. So he was one of our students. And uh, another one was um, Chris Rayner, who's a very good friend of mine. I still see him very regularly. Now, the interesting thing about those two guys was when they came through our training, um, they both wanted to go and fly the Harrier. And, uh, you know, that was the pinnacle. And um, you could see that they were good. And uh, they made it quite clear that they wanted to fly the Harrier. And I think I remember rightly that they both had stickers in their logbook where they handed their logbook in at the end of every month as you probably remember Nick where they had to be signed and they put Harrier stickers in there and interestingly enough both those guys knew where they wanted to go and they both got there. There's no doubt about it that uh, motivation certainly mm -hmm. aids it uh, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, your first Harrier tour on one squadron reads like a travelogue but not necessarily to the most attractive or comfortable places in the world i'm thinking of tromso in northern norway in the jungles of belize <laughs> often camping in the field yes. i'm guessing that sort of life could be fun for a while but did the novelty eventually wear off um I didn't have long enough for it to wear off because I was short-toured. I only did two years on one squadron. I, yes, I had a great time. It was a great experience. You say about 
Tromso, but not being a very nice place. Tromso is a great place, actually. <laughs> it's called the Paris of the Arctic Circle. Right. So it's, um, and I have, I have memories of um, coming out of um, a pub at three o'clock in the morning with the sun still up and all that sort of thing. It's, it's an amazing place, Tromso. But yes, Tromso, camping in Denmark, uh, going into Belize and all that sort of thing. It was, it was a very formative two years, first two years that I had on the Harrier Force. A really good experience. Of course, it didn't pull with me because I was actually all up for going out to Germany and doing more of the same out in Germany, especially field work, um, taking the Harriers out into the field. But sadly, I then got short toured because they needed me as an instructor up on the conversion unit 200 yards up the airfield, so that's where I went. You're, yeah, you, you mentioned that the short time you were on your first tour. It must have been a very steep learning curve because you seem to achieve an awful lot in mm. those few years. Yeah. Well, I joined the squadron, yeah, we joined the squadron, Chris Gowers and myself, in November. And midsummer, we were off to Belize uh, on the reinforcement with the Guatemalans threatening to uh, invade the country. So um, both Chris and myself, who at that stage had been on the squadron for about eight months, I suppose, were both um, frank to fly aircraft across the Atlantic to our refueling obviously so you know you're, you're seven eight months into your first tour and you suddenly guns loaded off across the Atlantic to confront the Guatemalans. Discover the pioneers of speed and adventure at one of the UK's most iconic museums. Whether it's a tour of the legendary Concorde, a walk around the Brooklands Aircraft Factory, or maybe a behind-the-scenes look at the McLaren Automotive Cars, the Brooklands Museum has it all. Based at Weybridge in Surrey, it's the perfect day out for all the family. We can also host your private function or meeting in one of our amazing event suites. With so much to see and do, come and take a look at Great Britain's history of speed and flight. Find out more by going to www www.brooklandsmuseum.com or give us a call on 01932 857 381 that's 01932 857 381 well Nev someone done well enjoyable? there Yes, yeah. really enjoyed that. And um, uh, yeah, Chris is such a fascinating chap and I was really delighted to uh, to, to join him with Nick. And um, we've got some, some fascinating stories to come in, in the next five weeks as well. So as I said before, we're going to put it on YouTube as a, a bit of a playlist uh, once we've played it all out. And mm. uh, looking forward to episode two next week. Yeah, indeed. I hope you all enjoyed that. That was very good indeed. And uh, be nice to hear some feedback about that now from uh, from the listeners. Yes, from the chat room. I hope you liked yeah. it, uh, yeah. guys and girls. So we're going to go on to the next part of the packed show for this week. And we're going to hand things over to our resident military expert. Thanks, Carlos. The uh, Just like we've been doing with the commercial, I think this is going to be kind of a uh, as quick as we can summary of all the things that have happened over the last couple of weeks or at least a, a selection but matt if you're ready hit that eject button Watch out, buggies, one, three, five, 50, angel 
You know what? I'm actually really glad it's not an eject button and there's actual handles. Otherwise, there'd be probably a lot more uh, premature ejections <laughs> from aircraft. Um, True that. So this this story at our podcast community, has, I love the people that are sending me these stories, but I don't know. I can't remember if we talked about it or not, but there is a CV-22 Osprey from the 352nd Special Operations Group at RAF Mildenhall that has been stuck in a nature preserve in Norway for almost a month now, if not over a month. Uh, yeah, no, it's over a month. Uh, this aircraft, we, I remember we, we, we spoke on the show about um, a hard clutch engagement issue where the Air Force had grounded its fleet, but the, uh, the Marines kept flying. So this is what happened to, to this aircraft. So it, had, it suffered a hard clutch engagement. The crew immediately put the aircraft down. If you've seen any of the, the social media, and, and, and Matt's going to put up the pictures here in a second of the recovery operation, so you can see actually how close to the water they came. But they, they ended up putting the aircraft down on uh, just a little chunk of land. Uh, looks like pretty soft ground close to the seashore. Um, since then, the... Uh, U.S. Air Force has been working with the Norwegian military to conduct a recovery operation. It's uh, This is a nature preserve, so it's actually been uh, pretty interesting to see some of the statements come out um, of, of how to pre- preserve both the, the, the wildlife in the area, not cause a, a bunch of damage um, while extracting this, this aircraft. Now, they evaluated, they thought about taking it apart and taking out piece by piece. And that just wasn't an option. The aircraft is too heavy. It's too sensitive. It, it may have caused some inadvertent destruction to the aircraft. So what they actually came up with was this uh, pretty innovative plan to create a wooden road uh, from where, where the aircraft sat, which is about 200 feet from the water. Um, so over the past week or so they have begun working on this plan where they're laying down almost what what you would kind of consider railroad railroad ties like these pretty hefty chunks of wood covered by another layer of of wood planking more or less and and they're going to extract this aircraft uh, up onto the ramp roll it down uh, into the the right by the seashore where it will be lifted by a crane onto a barge and then ship back down, you know, probably to Lostoff or something like that. But this is an incredibly complicated operation. Just moving the aircraft alone is going to be complicated without having it tip over. The, the ground is soft. And then now you have a, a fairly long moment from the, the crane that's going to lift the aircraft onto the barge. Uh, it's got to reach out at least 50 feet to to, to lift up this airplane um, without tipping over. So they're using sort of a construction barge. And then you have to ship the barge all the way back down to East Anglia for the aircraft to be recovered there. So it, uh, on top of all this, it's very shallow waters. Um, so soft ground, shallow water. Of course, it's happening right at the beginning of winter in Norway. So <laughs> that that doesn't make things That's any healthy, easier I'm sure yes <laughs> right and then they and then apparently there's these salamanders that have to be protected and not a single uh, salamander can be harmed 
um, <laughs> while doing this operation because it is a nature preserve. So um, what, I, what I like about the story is it's showing uh, two things. One, the innovation of, of the airmen that are coming up with, with ideas on how to recover this aircraft and two, the partnership with the Norwegian Armed Forces. Um, they're actually leading the, the recovery operation. We're just kind of guests there and advising and they are, they're working together. There's some pretty good pictures coming out of this, Matt. You posted some of them, at least of the road having been built. Uh, those pictures are from businessinsider.com. But uh, I imagine that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see some pretty cool videos and uh, and pictures of, of this aircraft rolling down this, the, a wood ramp, basically. <laughs> Very cool, huh? Yeah, this was this this was actually this actually broke quite a while back, didn't it? This story, I think it was. It was August, yeah, August the twelfth. This one landed there. Are you surprised they haven't already, um, you know, sort of you know, retrieved this Armando and, and and you know moved it by now? Uh, well, I, you, it's, it wasn't an easy recovery. I think that's what's taken. They think they evaluated a couple different ways to do it, but this this came out as the the winner of the idea fairies. Um, <laughs> So, and it probably took a little bit of time to gather the materials and kind of come up with the logistics. I did see in one of the pictures they've they've uh, built some tents, some mm. austere living and working environments out there. So, um, this is a we, we talk a lot about expeditionary uh, forces. This this is the the epitome of an expeditionary team going out in the middle of of nowhere and, and getting a job done. Um, so I think it's pretty I'm cool. Guess, I'm guessing the Chinook's not man enough for the job. No, no, it's a pretty heavy airplane. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure they they thought about that. Had they taken it apart, maybe you could you could probably do that, but but not a, not in one piece. Anyway, um, if you guys are ready to move to the next stories, uh, this is I'm going to try to just kind of speed through this uh, this airplane. KC-46. We've been talking about it for years now. Uh, whether you love it or hate it, uh, General Mike Minahan, the commander of Air Mobility Command, has finally approved the KC-46A, the Pegasus for worldwide deployments to meet operational requirements and combatant command taskings as of September 14th. So they used this airplane in a exercise where uh, it was filling uh, real-world taskings and support of combat operations, supporting other other tanker aircraft in the theater. During this exercise, the KC-46 refueled its first operationally tasked uh, missions in a combat zone when it refueled two F-15 uh, Strike Eagles. Uh, as part of that uh, same exercise, they conducted the first successful combat use of the military data network, which is an onboard communication system the KC-46 uses as an interface between um, an, a ground-based air operations center and all of the aircraft operating in its vicinity. So that was one of the tests that they had to get through. But after all that, the KC-46 completed a total of 206 flight, flight hours, offloaded 1.46 million pounds of fuel to 66 different aircraft. And uh, this kind of closes the uh, interim capability release phase, which was a 15-month process, which we've documented on PTUK, the all 15 months, um, that closes that kind of test phase and, and moves this aircraft officially into the um, the operational phase. Uh, Dirk asks in the, in the chat room, is the KC-46 
the 767 based aircraft? Yes, it is. And it will it replace the, the KC 135? Maybe eventually, yes. Uh, I know the US Air Force is actually looking at Airbus uh, potentially again. That was a previous project to um, replace those KC 135s. The KC 135 has been around since 1952 ish, something like that. 55. Um, so it's been around for a while, so it's probably due for a little bit of replacement. Anyway, thoughts on the KC-46? That's what I thought. Okay, moving on. <laughs> next tank. <laughs> Your timing uh, was lousy. Tank. I was I was going to uh, genuinely, sorry, I was taking a, a mouthful of water when you were, when you were asking. I was genuinely, do you, do you think we're ever going to see, um, you know, the because it's not been an easy journey to get this far, let's be honest, uh, however you dress it up. Um, you know, do do you think we'll actually see this actually go into service? Do you do you think they're they're there basically? I do. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll just like I was talking about innovation and and drive for the Osprey recovery. I think the KC four uh, the KC tens are going to get phased out first, mm. and eventually the KC one thirty fives. Now the KC one thirty five has gone through a lot of modifications. They've been re-engined over the years. Lots of technology mm. upgrades. Mm. Um, so they, they still got a little bit of life and it is a contender to be the first uh, operational military aircraft to reach a hundred years in service, wow. uh, which if you think about it, we're not that far off, right? Yeah, that's, kind of a that's close... huge though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we don't have this, we don't have the story this, this week in there, but the air forces uh, just announced that they're going to um, unveil officially the B-21 Raider bomber. Um, that is, you know, a replacement bot for the bomber fleet, but the B-52 is actually in contention for being one of the first uh, aircraft to be in service with the military for a hundred years. So it's either going to be the B-52, the C-130 or the KC-135. Wow. It'll be one of those. Um, we'll see. Uh, speaking of tankers, Embraer's KC-390. I told you guys I love this airplane. I think it's uh, baby very... Yeah, yeah. It's like a baby C-17, a little <laughs> two-engine thing, right? Um, so uh, L3 uh, Harris Technologies is actually working with Embraer to convert this into a tanker. So speaking of replacing tankers, um, the goal is to create this tactical tanker that can fly closer to the front lines uh, in a war with like pure competitors. Uh, and it will be able to refuel all kinds of military aircraft, according to L3. Um, there was a, an interview with, uh, with one of their spokespeople that said that it's going to fill this, this gap in the Air Force. Um, and then it will have international applications as well. This will such a small, uh, efficient airframe is going to allow some smaller countries, smaller air forces to have a aerial refueling capability. So the company is calling this the agile tanker. I love the word. They, they're throwing agile and innovation into everything. Now. <laughs> um, but the, under this teaming agreement, L3 Harris is, uh, is uh, beginning some modifications with this twin engine jet, baby C-17, like you said. They're going to do it in Waco, Texas. Uh, they've informed of the, of the company's Embraer, uh, L3's plan to uh, to build a prototype air, prototype aircraft during some meetings. Um, they informed them of that at, at the Pentagon this week. So they're going to install a refueling boom, obviously, a special military communications gear uh, on the plane. Uh, the, the KC-390 is already equipped to refuel airplanes with wing pods. So it's got a drogue. Uh, a drogue system. Uh, this 
new boom is going to allow it to refuel uh, fighter jets, bombers, transports, other airplane that that use the uh, the boom method as opposed to the the drove the basket method. Um, anyway, the company L3 is said that they're going to start these uh, this project pretty much right away, and then they they should have uh, a demonstrator at least by the year 2025. Any questions on the KC390? No. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> Uh, speaking of tanker transports, uh, the EC-130J, the Commando Solo, this is that airplane that is very unique, flown by a couple different units, but most notably the Air National Guard in Pennsylvania. Uh, this airplane is the only military airplane that has an onboard broadcast studio. Um, we're not going to get a chance to get a tour of it, Ned. I'm sorry, but this a no kidding television and radio studio wow. in an airplane. Yeah, this uh, airplane was originally designed for psychological operations, you know, basically propaganda. If you remember back to the 1950s and and during the Cold War, there was a lot of propaganda that would go out. Well, actually, even in World War II, is, is, um, it was most notable. But the, these radio transmissions from an aircraft outside of a just outside of a combat zone or a hostile area designed to um, to transmit. Um, psychological warfare messages. Now that mission evolved over the years, and what it turned out, what and one of the spokesperson from the uh, the one ninety third Tactical Electronics Warfare Group, one of the colonels up there, said that what they're actually most proud of was the humanitarian missions that this aircraft was assigned to. Um, if you can imagine, through earthquakes and hurricanes and and these these massive uh, you know cataclysmic environmental events the entire infrastructure goes down and the commando solo was launched out to uh, convey information to people, right? That this is, this is life-saving information that they were, that they were, um, you know, putting out through the airwaves, both on, on radio and television uh, airwaves. Uh, so the 90, the 193rd special operations group uh, flew this airplane. They flew their last mission. So it's being retired. They did this um, in Pennsylvania at their home uh in their home state at an air show and that kind of brings a close to this uh capability so uh, well, maybe we'll see it in a museum somewhere it looks so strange with all those extra i mean i'm guessing um you know radio points and stuff all over the air aircraft it, it definitely um it looks different yeah similar to the to the compass call the ec-130 compass call which we call the Flying cheese grater. <laughs> it's got so yeah. many atten antennas hanging off of it. Um, and then this, uh, this, this one, uh, this last sort of military update actually came from Micah. Uh, he sent it over to me, and we had talked about an amphibious version of a C-130. Well, apparently, it's gaining a lot of traction. Um, this amphibious version of a special operations MC-130J. Uh, according to the Air Combat or Air Force Special Operations Command, out of nowhere, they said they're going to have a demonstrator by the end of 2023. Um, so, uh, uh, Lieutenant General Slife, um, I actually know, or I've met, I don't know him that well, but uh, I've met him when, when, when he was a, a lieutenant colonel. He is the commander of Air Force Special Operations Command. He said in the Air Force Association um, conference, that they're planning on actually coming up with a, a demonstrator and a, and a proof of concept by the end of next year, which is incredibly fast. Um, now, the idea, 
Matt, I don't know. I don't know that we have pictures of it, but if you can imagine, they're going to just put these giant floats, like a float plane on the side of a C-130, attach it where the the main landing gear would go with a, with a brace and a bracket up to the nose wheel section. Um, and kind of the, the industry is thinking, well, this is a direct response to, to China's, um, you know, I guess, evolving threat in the South Pacific region. So not having the ability to just create a, an airfield and having the tyranny of distance, uh, they're, they're really pushing forward on this, this floating C-130 concept. Now, the, the Chinese and the Japanese both have uh, uh, floating transports, you know, float plane transports. There you go. There's some pictures of it. But um, the U.S. Air Force is kind of keeping this on the special operations realm. So uh, this the MC-130J has evolved over the last couple of years. Just most recently, it's it's gotten a, uh, a train following radar. But this is going to be pretty interesting to see um, the evolution of a float plane C-130. That'll be kind of cool, huh? <laughs> I just can't honestly imagine that. It's almost like, do you remember the, do you remember the Sea King, the search and rescue helicopter that had those big buoyancy aids each side of the, um, you know, the actual helicopter? It's, that picture on the screen there just, just reminded me of that for some reason. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, oh, that, that's a really good picture of, of the concept right there that Matt has up on the stream. It's a, just looks odd. Um, anyway, do you guys want to take the next story or you want me to talk about it? It's about that Vulcan bomber. Yeah, this uh, this one comes to, from walesonline.co.uk and it's all about the Vulcan overrun. It's covered on most of the social media feeds, especially Twitter. There was a lot of... Um, activity on twitter all about this and the world famous falcon bomber narrowly avoided a disaster after it overshot a runway and was just inches and it was just inches from crashing onto cars on a busy road the uh, x-ray mike 655 vulcan bomber careered off the runway as it attempted to do a high-speed taxi test at wellsbourne airfield near stratford-upon-avon in warwickshire pictures taken at the scene show the bomber's nose just feet away from stratford road it's understood that no one was hurt the mishap which happened at around 11 a.m on friday the 16th of september the aircraft itself which draws crowds of visitors looked uh, after by the um, XM655 Maintenance and Preservation Society at the airfield. And the, own, the Vulcan only occasional, uh, occasionally makes the high-speed taxi runs. And prior to last year, it had not done one for five years. The Maintenance and Preservation Society said on Facebook that due to a malfunction of a piece of equipment on the flight deck, the aircraft remained at full power for approximately two seconds longer than intended. Now, there were quite a few pictures on social media. I did see this, and there was a small short video as well. I don't know whether Matt's got the pictures of, uh, of that on there. But um, it was quite interesting to see just how close the, the actual aircraft got to the road and i did see some pictures actually they posted on their uh, twitter account um a few days after and it showed the recovery process where they were actually um digging out the uh, nose gear uh, wheels from the soil i think to be honest they were lucky that we've had a lot of dry weather here in the uk 
um, obviously over the last few months. And the, the ground it was in, although it did plough some of the ground up, it was wasn't as deeply dug into the ground as it could have been had the ground have been a lot wetter. So I think from what I've heard on the Twitter feeds, they got away reasonably lightly um, in regards to damage on the aircraft. So, um, yeah, what do you think, Armando? I think they were incredibly lucky. It doesn't look that bad, does it? I, I think they'll probably have it. But can you imagine those two seconds? This has got to be the, the longest two seconds of that pilot's life when you go to pull back the throttle and either, either either he pulls it back and it doesn't do anything or he tries to pull it back and it doesn't do anything. At that point, you're thinking to yourself, oh, boy, the amount of paperwork that this is going to cause. Yeah, yeah. And there was actually as well that the weekend after that happened where there was supposed to be a... Um, a, a ticketed event at the at the site where they were having people that were going to be there to watch the the aircraft do a fast taxi run and i i do believe they cancelled that in the end that particular uh, day so so yes there we go thanks for the military segment this week armando as always very well done this week uh, we hand things over on the show next to back to nev uh, to introduce the next part of the show and uh, nev where were we a few weeks ago Yes, the 8th of September, we were in Jersey for the Jersey International Air Display. And what a great time we had. Uh, I've got to say, the hospitality of the organisers, the display folks, the, the folks behind the scenes. Uh, we're going to be playing out some really interesting content over the next few weeks. Uh, but we thought, we'll uh, let's go to um, the day before the air show in a marquee. So you join me here with Nev at the Jersey International Air Show 2022 and uh, you get to, you're joining us here at a stage of the air show which is generally not seen by by everyone is it Nev No this is the the preamble for my dinner that they're just setting up for Yes no, yes uh, it's the meet and greet meet Nev yeah. evening so the guests will be arriving soon uh, to meet Nev obviously his arrival here on the island has been quite uh, quite the event uh, but not the only great event that happened because uh, we had quite the eventful journey here uh, all, well, mostly the landing at uh, the airport here in Jersey and it's one of those uh, landings Nev that, that that stopped quickly and produced a very pleasant fragrance in the cabin yeah I'm glad they did stop because there's only 6,000 feet of runway available at Jersey and um, yeah I think you put it down in in the touchdown zone um, and I think as we approached the end of the runway, he realised we probably need to brake a bit harder. Um, but the smell from the brakes as we <laughs> left the runway and turned onto the taxiway was uh, extraordinary. Wasn't it, it was. <laughs> it was. It was a very pleasant smell, yes. um, yeah. and the, the braking action was was quite something. I've flown into Bergerac Airport in France, Nev, and that was mm. that was tight with a seven three. But uh, this maybe was, this um, one, uh, this landing was sponsored by Brembo or BF Goodrich or, or someone like that. You know? Yes, uh, but, yes. Um, but we have got a video to play, haven't we, of of yeah. the landing, which I took uh, uh, as we uh, well as we approached the runway mm. uh, for you to watch, and we'll play that, won't we, Nev? Yeah, we'll um, do that. Uh, do, during yeah. the show. So, but uh, apart from that, we've got a good hotel. Um, yeah, it is brand the new. The weather. If we could pan the camera around now, you'd probably see, um, but uh, it's... It's a bit marginal. It's a bit, yes. Um, and this is the day before the air show, so we're going to be filming the reception that they're having here this evening. Um, 
on the Wednesday night. Um, tomorrow's weather is not looking great, I have to say. So this may be the only content you see from us. It may be. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. We'll I mean, see, we've I got planes on here. I mean, mm. it uh, yeah. it's, it's might be as good as it gets, but yeah. we'll see. So, uh, so I suppose we, um, we prepare ourselves now for Nev's reception this evening. Yes, exactly. So, so uh, look forward to it and uh, let's see what's coming up next. Uh, well, here we are. It's the day before the Jersey Air Show and I'm with Les, who's the display director. Is that right? That's correct. So, Les, tell me about the show. What, what have the challenges been this year so far? Um, the challenges so far have been very much about the weather. Getting aircraft down here, we, we've got some participants who we needed to validate. Um, so we needed to get those people in this morning, brief them properly. They flew this afternoon, all have validated well, okay. which is great. Yeah. Um, the Red Arrows arrived this morning. Uh, I'd spoken to Tom uh, and Doug, the manager, uh, the day before. We got them in this morning instead of this afternoon, outside of the bad weather. So, so yeah. we're, we're, we're good, we're on the way. And have you got any flexibility with the display in terms of what the weather might do tomorrow? <laughs> so you're suggesting to me I'm going to have a bad day tomorrow, aren't you? Um, I do have a little bit of flexibility. Um, I was looking at one stage of even bringing the display forward, um, but that's not going to work. I don't have too much going to the to the right because, uh, sorry, going later in the afternoon because um, the avenue where we are today, we will close that for the show. And that's a main arterial route through the center of Jersey. Uh, I have to have that reopened by five o'clock. So that means I have to, sorry, by 5.30. Uh, so that means I have to finish my show by five o'clock-ish. Um, so I've got 20 minutes or so, 20 minutes to half an hour slippage that I'll look to use if necessary tomorrow. And how much goes into the planning of a show like this? Um, a reasonable amount. Um, a lot of work goes on on the admin side uh, with people uh, who are looking after hotel accommodation, cars, um, getting people here, feeding them, and all the support staff, all the stuff that goes on in the background. There's a lot of work that goes on for that. And that's been happening since uh, February, March of this year. And of course, Mike Higgins trying to get funding and things like that for the show, as well as booking the acts. Uh, so my side of things, um, I don't quite get parachuted in on the last moment, uh, but a lot of the support behind the scenes is sorted out for me. And the guys go, there you go, Les. And when uh, we put the show together. Now, since the Shoreham incident, obviously, I think that's just changed the whole dynamic, uh, dynamic yeah. of air displays and, and what's allowable and not allowable. Have you had to change the way you display now? We were, we were very, very lucky in many respects here in Jersey. Um, one, we've got a seaside uh, venue. Uh, our regulations were already compliant with the findings of the Shoreham uh, post-Shoreham accident. Um, we have made changes uh, to make it, we believe, even safer and more important, sorry, as important, um, make it slightly easier for the display crews uh, with things that we've introduced to help them. Um, so we are very cognizant of, Sh of Shoreham and everything that Shoreham has meant for our industry uh, and we will not lose sight of that. Uh, but I'm pleased to say 
that the changes that we had to make here were nil or minimal. That's good to hear. Uh, well, we can't wait to see what's going to happen tomorrow, my, uh, Les, and let's just hope uh, the weather is kind to us all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Thanks ever so much. Cheers. Thank you. Well, here we are. It's the night before the Jersey Air Show, and uh, I'm with Mike, who's the organiser of this fantastic event. Mike, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to us. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. How difficult is it to organise something like this? Well, it's difficult on the one hand, but I'm also very fortunate uh, because I have a fantastic team who have been with me for almost 25 years. And uh, I come up with weird and wonderful ideas of what I'd like to have, and they put it into reality. And um, so I couldn't do without them, and I've got nothing but absolute praise for them. So, yes, it's difficult in the sense I struggle all year and I hate having to raise the money to do it because it's all by sponsorship. Um, but when the first parts of the teams arrive, all my worries go away and they pick up all the threads and they make it work. It's a fantastic event, uh, Mike. Uh, what have been the biggest challenges, would you say, so far? Well, this year our problem is we lost some major sponsorship just before the event. So we've had to cut back quite dramatically. And I normally try, like to have a display that has something for everybody. So we have novelty items which the kids like, such as uh, when we had the Cree Cree fly off the top of a broussard last year. Um, we have things that we want to have in the future. We had, for example, Jetman came over and dropped out. And he was treated like Julius Caesar after he landed, uh, being taken on a, um, a pickup truck. And all the children were chasing after him like Caesar. And the audience applauding. Um, but it's the range of airplanes. We normally like having jets. We like the warbirds. We like aerobatic airplanes. We like aerobatic teams. And so you try and build a mixture of things that everyone in the public can enjoy. And this year, unfortunately, we've had to scale back. Uh, we haven't got the jets because fuel prices have gone up 50%. And when you're looking at 9,000 litres for a jet, a particular jet, um, our budget didn't go with what uh, it's been reduced. So I'm a bit disappointed this year that we have less, but we've got a fantastic range of warbirds and other airplanes. It'll still be a good show. Um, but I'm hoping next year we'll be back to normal and have the full range. Yeah, now I'm sure you're in uh, close contact with the Met Office at the moment about uh, tomorrow's weather. How's it looking at the moment? Okay, I'm out of the loop at the moment. I know the discussions that we've had so far. Uh, there's various uh, cells of thunder or heavy showers coming through and they're using the weather radar. And, okay, Today, for example, turned out differently to what we expected, and Jersey is like that. Uh, we can have uh, an absolutely awful weather forecast, and it turns out brilliant. On the other hand, we've got a good day, and we think everything's going swimmingly, and halfway through, we're going to see mist or something, and it throws things out. Um, all I know is, tomorrow, the team I've got are going to be working very closely with MET and Weather Radar, and we'll be putting the axe in at the appropriate times and getting our display. I was just talking to Les earlier on and I was asking him about the flexibility that you have. Do you have some built-in flexibility to the system? Well, normally what I do, um, I have a list of aeroplanes. If we lose something, 
and that's standard in early space. I can't think of an early space I've done in the 25 years that everything that was coming actually came. It's just the nature of the thing with serviceability, weather or operational requirements. Um, so in terms of uh, displays, the one thing I've learned is you've got to be flexible. So I normally have a list of aircraft I can call in if we lose something. Now this year, I'm somewhat restricted, but I'm reading the Guernsey display, which takes place in the morning. They've got different aeroplanes to ours. I know some of them are there already. I've been talking to the owners tonight. And so, depending on what happens first thing in the morning when we discover what's coming or affected by weather or serviceability, then we'll slot in other acts. Yeah. But it's stiff. Air display is about flexibility. You can't be rigid. Nothing ever goes according to plan. It's a dynamic environment, isn't it? That's, that's for sure. Well, Mike, we're all looking forward for a fantastic display tomorrow. Fingers crossed for the weather. And thank you very much for all the effort that you and your team have put into it. Well, thank you very much. Right, thank you. Wow. And, and, th and this is just the reception. <laughs> Oh yes, the, the preamble. Yes, uh, this is those night before, as I mentioned, and um, so the great and the good were there, and we were allowed there as well, which was yeah, surprising. well done. <laughs> that was very nice. Of, How did you blag that one? Uh, well, yeah. I don't know. I just phoned Mike up and I said, "Can we bring a oh. camera and a, and a fluffy mic down?" And he said, "Yeah, of course you can." So very good, great. very good. Um, well, it sounds so like you had a great time. Can't wait. Well, that to event you. would normally be held in Government House, but because they're between governments at the moment in Jersey, that wasn't possible. So that was why the marquee was set up. But oh. next year we'd be back in Government house so uh, we're hoping to be there uh, next year also wonderful so uh, but uh, no some, some great folks down there and we've got some absolutely unbelievable content to show you from Jersey uh, Airport itself Wow uh, where we get the chance to go airside and talk to people in nice aircraft so that was wonderful. a brilliant experience but that's uh, that's for another week yeah another thing like Nev said earlier on actually is the fact that we're everyone there including the organizers were dreading the weather because the forecast was actually not very good mm. for the actual air show day and it was lit wasn't there but it was literally like just literally about an hour i suppose or two hours before the air show was due to start the, the literally the, the area where the air show was going to take place the clouds parted and the sun came out yeah, yeah, I didn't bother yeah, bringing. Yeah. I, I left the sun cream back in the hotel because I thought I shan't need that, and ended up getting sunburn in the end. <laughs> wow! Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, so I hope you all enjoyed uh, that. There's loads more to come, isn't there, Nev? From mm. uh, from Jersey. Yeah, got going to be playing that over the next few weeks, and uh, some really really nice stuff. And I can't emphasise enough how uh, brilliant the the folks were, especially. Uh, our chum Jonathan that got us the um, uh, airside access as yes. well um, just really really nice and uh, a can-do attitude which was so helpful for us that was great yes and the catering was also very good on the morning of the the uh, planning morning of the air show Certainly. I will say yeah <laughs> yep. So, social media links end before we uh, wrap up tonight's show. So, uh, if you didn't already know, uh, actually this week, should we get Armando to do the social media links just for a change? So, uh, over to you, Armando. Where can people find our show online? I love it when you do that, Carlos, uh, and you spring it on us. Well, listen, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those are always the best places to go. Uh, follow us at Plain Talking UK. You can always go to the website. That's PlainTalkingUK.com. If you're still on Juno or AOL, 
Um, <laughs> otherwise, go to social media. If you want to send us an email, you can just send us an email to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. We actually do appreciate those emails, good, bad, and uh, leads on stories, since we are on the cutting edge of breaking news here. And if you're already watching this, you're uh, a winner. You get a gold star for the day on YouTube. But if you're not, and you're listening to us, you can come see my summer shirts and Carlos's <laughs> hats and Neb's ironed and pressed shirts. Yes, those, and- those are always a win, it has to be said. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Come over to YouTube and uh, you can see us. That's youtube.com slash plain talking UK. And then there's always the WhatsApp, which is plus four, four, seven, five, seven, our favorite airplane, two, two, four, nine, one, double six. And we can actually take your messages during the show and your pictures. Indeed. Keep them work safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There we go. There we go. And uh, that is about all we've got time for on episode 426 of the show this week. Going to say a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the world of YouTube tonight. It's been great to be back on air again this week. We have really missed all you guys and girls out there in the world of YouTube and uh, audio podcast you download land. So we'll be back next Friday for another packed show again next week hopefully all the team will be able to uh to join us next week uh mondo are you uh hope it or you're going to be uh with us next week he's nodding should be no Yay. i'll be here i'll be here next week the week after we're going to be in miami so yeah vacation to vacation <laughs> we'll be back we'll be back next week which is great so mm. thanks to everyone in the chat room for joining us tonight all the youtube crowd and also not forgetting as well thanks to our producer john for putting all the show notes together mm. for tonight's show and a big thanks as well to nev for putting all the great video work together from yeah, jersey yeah. and the interview work with nick as well and a thanks to captain nick as well for his hard work on the interview series and thanks as well to the glorious matt smith in the ptuk studio for making everything gleam online on See, the show i haven't forgotten how to do it that's great news i know <laughs> that's it then Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend, whatever you're up to. And we'll see you all next Friday. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.